Welcome to episode 101 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My Woo-hoo. name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in Hannah and James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we have a arduous task ahead of us. We are going to be discussing our favorite films from the 2010s. Looking back at an entire decade and trying to piece together what stuck out to us as the important works from 10 years of cinema. Jesus. Oh, God. <laughs> this is really daunting, right? Yeah. It was, but then it, it helped me like reflect on myself a lot, Aww. where I'm like, I think I was trying to make it better than I really wanted it to be, <laughs> where I'm like, what do you truly, what truly right. were the films that you liked? Yeah, so yeah. like, is the way to go, what is the most important movies of the decade, or is it like, what matters to me, Yeah, and what is my personal taste? It's a mix. That was my personal struggle. In the mm-hmm. beginning, I had this whole kind of theory, like I wanted it to represent the decade, and these important works that kind of symbolize like where we are in the 2010s. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. And then it was like, wait, what did I really just enjoy mm-hmm. the most? And I think that's the way to do it, honestly, because you can't cover that much ground. Yeah. It's kind of like you have to be selfish about it. Like, it's all about me. Yeah. yeah. This is what I like. And I think I started out um, kind of focusing on myself and what kind of like pricked my own uh, blood, I guess. But and then I saw all these movies that were the, it was the same theme wrapped up in a different kind of dressing, and I kind of saw myself in the mirror a little bit. And it oh, was no. frightening. <laughs> but then I also thought, like, well, you know, it made me realize where the holes in what draws me in may lie, which I think is also very important. But yeah, balancing like the cultural zeitgeist with your own personal drive is like the impossible balancing act. I think for me, the number one film that kind of represented that was Moonlight, where it's like, I know it is probably one of the most important movies of this decade. And it is in my top 10, but I was like struggling with going that route of like, this movie is very important. Or do I go, what movie personally did I like more? So it's a hard balancing act. I don't know how how you weigh those. I think the thing you risk running into is if you pay that much attention to, like, what the great works of the decade are, then you have, like, a thousand critics submitting the same list over and over again, just slightly renumbered. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just not interesting. Like, I don't really learn any more about, you know, Critic A's opinion if Critic B's list is the same list, just rearranged. Gotcha. So, like, Moonlight, I agree, is a, like, very formidable film and a very, like, substantive film. I did try to think about what defines the decade to me and what themes and what filmmaking aesthetics, I think, represented what I really appreciated about the decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I tried to focus more on that than, mm. like, what were the important works that right. everyone agreed were great. Mm-hmm. So, like, Moonlight and Parasite and Boyhood. I didn't even like Boyhood. But <laughs> yeah. Just, like, mm-hmm. throw right. out a few examples of just, like, movies that are, like, Tree of Life. I don't know. These, like, Nexus films yeah. that, like, everyone agrees on are great. I don't know if that wasn't as important to me than, like, what were the big topics of the decade? Like, the internet and, like, gender mm-hmm. and the democratization of filmmaking. So, like, digital DIY films. The way that landscape has changed, what movies do I love that define that? That's yeah. kind of, like, how I approached it. Hmm, yeah. Well, well, see, in the beginning, I kind of approached it. And, again, um, Moonlight is an example of this, of, like, giving new perspectives and, like, new voices in film. And that's why... 
I do feel like Moonlight is an example of that. It's like a queer black experience film that we don't really get very often. So I tried to like focus on that in the beginning. Like what are films that kind of highlighted new voices? But then as I thought about it more, I was like, there's so many other films that I actually personally enjoyed more. And so I kind of ended up going down that route. Yeah, I mean, representation on both sides of the camera is part of like that, you know, fabric I was just talking about. Like what were the big themes of the decade in film? Mm -hmm. So we each made longer lists than what we're talking about today, obviously. I'm going to post James's list in the notes for this episode. So you can see his top, what are you doing, 25? 25. Okay, I did that too. Wow. We'll each have like separate <laughs> posts of, uh, you know, our list later on the website. And if you want to see James's up front, um, check the notes for this episode. And by the end of the month, we'll try to come to some consensus of like, what were our collective picks? And I think once we get to that, that's where the more like, the bigger titles will sort of bubble to the surface. Uh, and that's where you'll mm-hmm. get your moonlights and witches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Or maybe it'll just be a fuck mess. I mean, (laughs) even when we do our uh, top films of the year episodes, it's hard for us to come to some consensus. And it's kind of strange how few films overlap. So pulling from this even wider pool, it'll be interesting to see what really does come together. And because we've never done anything like this before, so we're just figuring it out. (laughs) So without further ado, uh, we're each going to list our top five films of the 2010s. And all that's coming up to you right right now. now. If you ever want to have an adult relationship with a woman, like if you want to have sex with a woman's vagina, you need to be comfortable with the fact that the vagina menstruates. And just say menstruation. It's not a big deal. So start saying it now. Menstruation. So, as is tradition, with these longer episodes where we list too many movies, we're going to start with James. Yeah, great. (laughs) James, what was your number five film of the decade? It was Shoplifters, which actually, a a problem I ran into is a lot of the films in my top 25 seem to come out in the last few years, and I kind of had to reevaluate, like, was this actually that good, or was it, like, recency bias? This movie has, like, stuck with me since I watched it, and I just could not deny that it was one of the most powerful films I've seen this decade and had a personal connection to me. It tells kind of a simple story of a family that they're kind of a ragtag, disparate like group of individuals that come together and form their own family and society kind of gets in the way and tries to like break them up essentially. But what I found so poignant about this film was that there's been a lot of movies recently about class, especially, you know, your parasites. Uh, we've talked about burning. Burning was in my top 25 but this one had this special connection with me as someone that is an only child doesn't really you know have a lot of family connections outside of my mom and my dad and so the family I consider is like the friends I've made chosen family chosen family and I know that's a theme that's come up in other films but I thought this one told that story the best of any film this decade and really resonated with me is that family is not what you're born into necessarily. It's the community you create intentionally around yourself. And it it just like really resonated with me in a very powerful way. So I don't know. That's my number five. I don't know if anyone else has seen it. I Um, saw it in the theater. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a director who's done these kinds of stories a bunch of times before. Yeah. But his movies are usually a little more clinical. 
He did this movie called Nobody Knows that's about these like kids that get abandoned by their mom mm-hmm. and basically form a community in this apartment that they can't leave. And they go out and shoplift and things and bring like food back. But for the most part, they don't want to be discovered by CPS or the Japanese equivalent. And Koreeda, like, continuing these those kinds of themes over and over again, uh, I feel like he really did strike a, like, more emotional, like, sweeping drama with this one that felt like a bigger scope, like, emotionally. Yeah, and it caught me off guard, like, the last third of the movie. I was, like, in tears, and I was not expecting that. Anytime a movie can kind of catch me off guard like that, like, I'm hooked. Uh, and there was a lot of tender scenes of just, like, human connection whether it be little flirtations between the mom and dad characters or the way they eat together. It really brought this like very humanistic kind of perspective that is universal and that like connected with me on like a deep, almost spiritual level. And like the heartbreaking aspect of it is like you're let into this intimate world that they've built together. And when an outsider comes in and doesn't legitimize it, like once the state comes in, and it's like, well, obviously this needs to be broken up because this mm-hmm. is not legitimate at all. Like, you're heartbroken because you've seen that it is, like, right. a good thing for everyone involved. Who They have so little elsewhere. Yeah. I thought it was... It had some of the most tender, like, authentic scenes authentically showing human relationships. Like, there's this sex scene between the mom and the dad that is just so impromptu. Like, they're eating noodles and then they... They're just like having sex while the kids are out and then they the kids come back home and the family's laughing. And it just felt like so true to life and totally uncontrived. And also another scene I want to talk about before we move on is to me that embodies the film is when they're watching the fireworks huddled together as a family and just them like in the lights of the fireworks and they're all so happy. And then for that to be broken up, like you said, by some outside force was so tragic to me but that scene just like encapsulates like what i'm talking about with the the family that you've created and creating these like little enclaves of happiness that really resonated with me and i think the complicated thing is there is this strain of i mean they obviously love each other and they have this bond but it's also you know a bond that they've created out of necessity like at the very end i i don't remember exactly what happens but i get the sense that the dad like kind of abandons the kids and like leaves them to their own devices and then he finds the son later on and he apologizes but it's like they'll never like do anything they can to stay together like they'll they'll do what they have the resources to do and then Beyond that, it's like everyone for themselves, which I mean, and that that's like a very real kind of relationship. It's almost like let's scramble and right. then reassess once the storm is passed. Yeah. 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 Correct me if I'm wrong, too, that fireworks shot you were just talking about, like, aren't they crowded in this like sort of shanty where they can only see like a small portion of the sky? Right. And like that that thing of beauty from like, you know, the probably the wealthier part of the city mm-hmm. that they can only see right. together through this like small window. Like I remember yeah. the framing of that really striking me. That to me embodies the entire picture. It's like a group huddled together trying to find this little glimmer of hope. And there is a class thing too of like hope is kinda it's far away and they have like this fleeting moment together as a family. That to me is one of the most powerful scenes of the twenty tens. And I mean, even further than that, the beach scene where they actually are like a family unit in public mm-hmm. and like yeah. fulfilling their normal roles and 
you know, really reinforcing, like, my name is grandmother, my name is father, mm-hmm. uh, in this, like, very public display. That felt, really, like, really, you know, mm-hmm. satisfying, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really good movie. So my number five was from 2016. I tried really hard to spread out my, like, top mm-hmm. 25 across the decade. And then when we did these top fives, I did realize they were all very recent. Yeah. Like, are, since yeah. we started the block. <laughs> and I also tried not to repeat any directors. That was my other, like, mm-hmm. thing. You know, I didn't want to, like, give a director two slots when there other people could get in. Yeah. So my number five was The Neon Demon from Nicholas oh. Winding Refn. Yes. Elle Fanning plays a fashion model who moves to L.A. She's underage, and everyone is struck by her beauty. She's described as a diamond in the sea of glass. Like, everyone's beautiful, but Mm -hmm. she's, like, extra beautiful. (laughs) And that extra thing that she has makes everyone in the fashion industry want to devour her, uh, which becomes very literal as the movie becomes more of a horror film overall. It's a very gorgeously shot film. It looks like a fashion magazine spread. And it's about narcissism and competition, particularly among women. And it kind of is this like amoral minefield in that way. Like it might be a misogynist film. He also collaborates with two female screenwriters and a female cinematographer to sort of like tamper that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And Elle Fanning, from what I understand, had some creative input on her character. And basically she said she wanted to be a director after making this movie, which was like really cool. Yeah. Um, and what you see over the course of the film is like, yeah, this is a pretty familiar story about someone entering Hollywood, Los Angeles, and being devoured by the industry. But she realizes the power of that attention and that beauty, and she turns that back on the world around her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't win in the long run, but she has this like acceptance of like this narcissistic love of her own power and the beauty that her youth affords her. And she like turns it back on the world. And there's like this really sick subversion in that that I really loved. On top of it, having uh, the same sensory pleasures that everyone loves in movies where it's like purple lighting and uh, synth music and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a very like surface level visual piece on top of being this like very feminine horror story. Uh, and I really liked it a lot. Yeah, it was glossy as hell. Yes. <laughs> it was just like, like reading a high couture magazine drenched in blood basically. Yeah. It was fantastic. I love this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like you're at like a, like a gay nightclub where everybody's just like losing their damn mind. <laughs> um, I, I think like um, I'm a, my favorite movie of 2019 was Knife and Heart. And this reminded me a lot of Knife and Heart, just like the vibe it gives off and all the fun, flashy neon colors and the spooky stuff. But yeah, this movie, Neon Demon was just so surprising Uh, how far it goes where you're like oh they're not gonna do this and like holy shit they are doing it (laughs) it's definitely a provocation right it's yeah like there's like lesbian necrophilia in this movie right yeah (laughs) like what and this was in theaters right oh i saw this at the amc yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean when you walked into amc you're like oh i'm gonna see some like you know some scissoring between a corpse and a woman like yeah wow (laughs) wow (laughs) it's just it's shocking but it Definitely keeps you entertained. <laughs> I think, too, like, this director, more than any other I can think of, visually kind of set the standard, like, the aesthetic for the 2010s. And going back to, like, Drive, which I think came out in... 2011. 2011. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which, to me, like, there's been so many movies that come out this decade that have that 80s synth-pop score, and then that visual style you see in Neon Demon. And it feels like Drive, and then... 
you know, Neon Demon have kind of pushed that aesthetic. And I feel like they've been very influential. I've seen a lot of other directors go back to that same aesthetic over and over again. That's why, you know, Drive and this movie feel very important mm-hmm. as far as like set, yeah, setting the standard for what the aesthetic is for like a cool movie in the 2010s. Like I said, I had to like choose between like what Refn film did I want to include mm-hmm. here? And that one and Drive are the only two that are really in contention for me. And something else I noticed about myself in making this list, and I wrote a whole article about this, is just my tastes have skewed more towards like the absolute vulgarest shit. <laughs> like things that are almost pornography have been like rising to the top of things I enjoy more mm-hmm. and more as the years go on. Who are you becoming? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanna say a little bit of it is backlash to like how Disneyfied cinema culture has become and like how de-sexed Disney movies are even Star Wars and the MCU like dominating the box office recently like it just feels very samey and very like non-human and then when you get into these like pure id like sexual nightmare movies it feels like that Cronenberg thing from the 80s -hmm. creeping back in and it's just nice to know that these things are still out there being gross and being like hypersexual Mm -hmm. and honestly most of the movies I'm going to talk about today are like in that realm (laughs) And I just think this is one of the more beautiful ones. Like, it it rose just from, like, an aesthetic level, rose towards the top. Yes. Absolutely. So, Brittany. Yes. What was your number five? So, my number five is actually a documentary. And it's probably my favorite documentary ever. And it's The Queen of Versailles. Which, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which came out in 2012. This I love so much because it's sort of like... um, I love like the Real Housewives, like every single franchise so much. And it's almost like a documentary mixed with like the Real Housewives. <laughs> That's why I like it a lot. Um, so it follows the Siegel family. So Fred Siegel is this billionaire and he made his fortune off of like just like cheap money and timeshares, crap like that, essentially scamming people. This film starts like showing how they live and they're. They're building their own version of Versailles in South Florida. Wow. (laughs) In the outskirts of Orlando in like a swamp. So they're building a 90,000 square foot house that's going to have like gold toilets and things of that sort. And it's going to, it's going to mimic Versailles, like the actual palace. And it was supposed to be um, the biggest house in America because I think the Biltmore estate is like 75,000 square feet. So yeah, so at first it seems like a documentary that's like documenting this like super wealthy family and this like giant house they're going to build. And then it just goes like batshit crazy where these people are new money. So they're like the trashiest rich people you could think of. And like they'll go get their hair done and be like, oh, let's get like 20 piece nugget sets for everyone. All the girls of the salon. (laughs) Or they'll go to Walmart and just like fill up baskets with like crappy toys and things like that and like just waste their money and they're like super materialistic. But yeah, so Fred Siegel is 30 years older than his wife, Jackie, and they have like a good bit of children and there's like no love in this family. And he is like, Fred Siegel is just like a horrible human being. He's like just this mean old man that sits on a golden throne and his kids will be like, Dad, I love you. Good night. And he's like, get out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, he's just grumpy. It's just that's how Fred is. Like, just oblivious to everything. And then the 2008 recession hits. 
and their world fucking crumbles to the <laughs> ground and like this is all caught on camera wow where like they lose like almost everything and they have to halt the building of their home so essentially i don't even think it's ever been finished it's just this unfinished frame of like a 90,000 square foot house with just all this slabs of marble imported from Italy and shit like that just stacked up and covered in plastic and they had to abandon this project um and then you kind of like go into like how horrible they sort of treat each other and their families and there's this one scene where there's one of their maids who like raised these children and she's like, they're so good to me. They gave me this house. And it's like a playhouse outside that she has a twin-size bed in. Wow. And it's so, so sad and so bizarre. I liked this a lot. Um, <laughs> just because, like, not that it was fun to see, like, someone who's super rich and, like, their world just crash. It's just to show, like, how empty these people are. And they literally had everything. And everything they had was, like, dipped in gold, literally. Um, but they were just miserable. And it was, the like, the saddest fucking thing you can ever watch. Just how empty their lives are. And the director, um, she's done a couple of documentaries. Mm-hmm. Lauren... Um, Greenfield? Yes, Lauren Greenfield. Yeah. Is she a photographer? Gre- yeah, she's a photographer. I saw her most director. recent movie... Um, Generation Wealth, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they like went back to the Versailles place and like showed like how it is now, like way long after mm-hmm. the like I'm assuming during that movie they were like still spending tons of money and this part there's there's basically this desolated like yeah. half finished <laughs> project, you know. Yeah. It's so embarrassing. I have not seen The Queen of Versailles, but I love Lauren Greenfield. And I think she is so I've looked at her photography books and I also saw Thin, which is her documentary. Yeah about um, yep. an eating disorder clinic. So I think that she is preoccupied with artifice and the performance mm-hmm. of identity. And she yeah. has a book about, like she photographs teenage girl habits and rituals like across the United States. And I am like obsessed with what she does. I think she's super interesting. And I think it's the same thing that she's doing in um, The Queen of Versailles. Like looking at this bullshit exterior and then watching it crumble away is satisfying because artifice is just satisfying to see dissolve absolutely it's just it's just crazy that like it was all caught on camera to me like i thought that was just mind-blowing yeah she's fantastic nice so what was your number five um so my number five was marjorie prime which is from 2017 um, it's a movie about a woman who is getting older and she her husband is dead and she has this like prime version of him. So it's this like like a hologram copy. I'm not sure if it's like a hologram or a I think it's a hologram. Not it's a almost like or... an Alexa, but it's like right. a clone version of like. a Yeah. Yeah. But so and it's him in his younger day. So she's in like her 80s and the Alexa man is. <laughs> Played by John Hamm. He looks fantastic and he's still totally in love with Marjorie, who's the main character. But he is her husband, but like the best distillation of her husband's qualities. It's not him in his entirety. And she has conflicts with her daughter and her family. Her family is kind of resentful of this hologram because it isn't representative of who her husband really was. Um, And there's this, like, struggle between, like, basically your legacy and the the lived reality of a person and what 
they kind of pass on to their uh, family. So eventually Marjorie dies and then she also becomes a prime version of herself for her family. And the thing that I love the most about this movie is the ending because at the very end of the movie, there are all these prime versions of these family members that are kind of, uh, their purpose is to be kind of like a palliative to their family. But now that their family is all gone, they're just these copies, these echoes of people that have lived interacting with each other in ways that the real people never could. They're just like talking kindly with each other, remarking about memories that they shared when before like people would argue about the truth of particular events and what happened and what didn't happen. And it's just representing this piece of humanity that was never communicated in real life. I just thought that was a totally beautiful scene. So yeah, that was my number five. I think what's beautiful about Marjorie Prime is like, it's almost a setup for like a sci-fi, almost like a Black Mirror, Mm -hmm. maybe a Twilight Zone episode. But like the best sci-fi, it actually gets to something very deep about humanity. And like you were kind of talking about, like when someone passes away, we try to construct the best version of them. Mm You know, because you don't want to shit on the dead. You want to imagine them or think of them as like the best version of themselves possible. That's like reducing the complexity of who they actually were Mm -hmm. as people. And that's like what this movie does in a very like overt sort of way with these holograms. It's like these are not who these people actually were. But I I think the thing that I love, it's like there are secrets within the family that nobody wants to talk about. Right. And the the holograms eventually are able to kind of reckon with those secrets openly with each other. So I see them as like the ghosts of these people. Definitely. And they finally have the chance to reckon with each other authentically. And it's heartbreaking that they're not actually alive, that this has all happened once they're dead and, and nobody is like there to witness uh, like the coming together of the family but it's i mean that's what i love about it it's heartbreaking and it's it's beautiful and and tragic i like the minimalism of it like it was originated as a stage play and ultimately it's just a room full of people talking yeah and it happens in this generational way where mm-hmm. like one person swapped out for another as people die and are be- being like become tools for therapy for the next generation. And I just like that it is this like big heady movie about like time passing and Mm -hmm. like cloning and like what it means to be AI and like what is a person. But it literally is just people talking for like an hour and a half. And I just really like when sci-fi can convey these like huge ideas when it's like the, like we could afford to make this movie. I think we couldn't afford John Hamm's salary or like, (laughs) Gina Davis's salary. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody can afford her. She's like never in movies anymore. Right. It's nice to see her in this. Yeah. But if we were smart enough to write this movie, we could film it and like basically have the same production values. Right. And yeah, it's really impressive in a time where it's hard to get big ideas on film. If it's not a pre-existing property, it's really hard to get a big heady idea distributed. Mm-hmm. So I really like it when one breaks through like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing I thought was beautiful about the movie too was you know, it's set on like the ocean mm-hmm. and there's all this metaphor about time and the ocean, the tides coming in and out. So like, even though they had a small budget to work with, I feel like they used it really well and yeah. where they decide to set this movie. 
And it's a very calm movie too, just on the that repetitive sound and like mm-hmm. the hushed tones. Like there yeah. are some big emotional exchanges, but a lot of things are talked about in these like terse, like hushed tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't well, know. Well, like Hannah was saying about secrets. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like these secrets kind of ruminating in the ocean and time. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's it's a wonderful movie. What was your number four, James? Uh, my number four was We Need to Talk About Kevin. Ooh, nice. Lynn Ramsey. Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. I had a hard time picking a Lynn Ramsey because, like you said, I didn't. I kind of had the same attitude. I didn't want to put two movies from the same director, and she is one of my favorite directors of the past decade, so I had to include her. This, to me, is her, at least my personal favorite. It's kind of a simple story. It's Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley. Basically raising a sociopathic <laughs> serial killer. But this to me was my like introduction to Lynn Ramsey. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was so taken aback by the visuals. It's visually striking, the mm-hmm. bright reds. And also some of the grotesque imagery of like rotten food is a recurring theme. Mm-hmm. But I think what's had a lasting impact with this movie for me is it's truly a horror movie. I wouldn't put it in that genre of a horror movie, but it's truly horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. And it's like kept me up at night just thinking about like almost like wanting to second guess myself about having children, not having any. You bring this thing into this world and you you do your best to raise it. But what if it's through evil. no fault of your own, it is pure evil. And then it's like, you have to raise it. There's a lot of sociopathic kids out there, too. That's why (laughs) this movie is anytime somebody asks me why I don't want to have children, I'm just like, you have to either read the damn book or watch this movie and it'll answer Mm -hmm. all your fucking questions. (laughs) Now, we all met when we worked in the same office together and used to trade DVDs all the time. Yes. I think this is the first one you ever lent me. I think so. (laughs) I think you gave me that same speech. Like, this movie convinced me never to have children. (laughs) Yeah, That's sort of how I took it at first, too. Yeah, like, I had read the book because years ago it was on, like, John Waters' favorite book list or something like that. And the book is like journal entries from the mother's perspective. And it's sort of like, she's like, I never wanted to have a kid. Is that why my kid is like this? And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, (laughs) holy crap. And then I watched this movie and I have like a legit family member who's, he was diagnosed with like explosive disorder when he was a kid, because I don't think that someone could be diagnosed as like a sociopath until they're 18 or something like that. So, but that's what he (laughs) yeah he's about to turn 18 he's gonna come and kill us all um but yeah so this movie like really hit that level like Mm -hmm. personal level with me where i'm like yeah that kid was crazy i don't want to have one like that mines would turn out like that because i don't think i would be a good parent yeah (laughs) but yeah what it really besides just the horrific nature of the story it's like the visual storytelling in this movie every time i watch it I like pick up on more visual yeah. information and like that is something that Lynn Ramsey is so fucking good at. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she edits her own films, but she definitely is in that editing room because yeah. you see the same techniques across all of her yes. features. I think her editing style like puts you in the POV of the character. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people could look at this mother very judgmentally and be like, "Oh, it's her fault the kids this way," but the way that right. you're in her head watching things fold out the way she sees them the whole time it's the way we're reacting like i don't know what i would do if i had the situation yeah and and i think it goes to the complexity of raising children where it's like nature versus nurture like how much of this was my fault and how much Mm -hmm. of it was outside of my control and that is 
a horror. Right. Yeah. Something you don't have control over. And then if you put the kid on like a fire station step, you go to jail. Yeah, that freaks me out. I do. <laughs> I think this movie also reminds me of Hereditary because there are these like clear parallels between yeah. the mother and the son. And I think that that's horrifying too. Not just that like I could have a child and like they're a sociopath and I oh. couldn't have done anything about it. But like I'm not a sociopath. But I have these tendencies. I have a child, and like I'm looking in the mirror, and this child does this thing horrible, mm-hmm. yeah. Thing. And they're casting uh, too. Like Ezra Miller and right. Tilda Swinton look very similar. Yeah. Like the casting of that movie's wild. Yeah, I love Tilda Swinton in this role because I think in every role she plays in, she's perfect in because mm-hmm. she's like this human chameleon. Where, I don't know, I just look at her as, like, this blank canvas, and she just gets molded into what she needs to be for, like, everything she does. Well, she's otherworldly. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Mm. And, oh, man, that scene in the beginning where she has the baby, and she's walking him around in the, the, uh, what's the, like, the push cart? The pram. There we go. Not the push cart. And the baby (laughs) is just screaming and screaming and screaming. Oh, God. I mean, that is like the reality of motherhood, not like, oh, I'm going to be so tired and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have like baby vomit all over me. It's just like this child is screaming and I have no idea what to do and I've done everything. And then yeah. she goes to this construction zone <laughs> with the jackhammers. Yeah, just to drown <laughs> it out. It's just so exhausting. I, yeah, that scene and all the scenes would. Like, John C. Riley needs some credit in this movie, too. Mm-hmm. For playing he a plays, serious role. <laughs> well, he's serious, and he's, like... What's wrong with totally you? Totally clueless. Yeah. Like he doesn't see right. yeah. that this kid... There's something wrong with this kid. And the way that the son manipulates mm-hmm. the parents, mm-hmm. like... Oh, man. All, just all of it kid got to me. Um, yeah. And, again, yeah. it's, like, a horror movie in the most real sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So one of the scariest movies of the decade, I would say... So what about you? What's your number four, Brandon? It is a Polish disco musical about Ah, killer mermaids. ah, (laughs) It's called The Lore. As if you didn't know already. Right. (laughs) The Lore is directed by, I'm going to murder this name every time I try it, Agnieszka Smavinska. Sounds good to me. Yeah, sure. She is a Polish filmmaker. I believe this is her first feature film. She's made a few shorts. It is about two mermaid sisters named Golden and Silver. Mm. Uh, they wash up on the shore. I want to say late 70s, early 80s Poland. Definitely like Eastern Bloc era. Mm-hmm. And they seduce men on the shore and then get a job at a local disco burlesque. <laughs> as one does. Yes. <laughs> and they are beautiful from the top up as these like young, you know, I want to say in the verge of being 20-ish. Yeah. And from the bottom down, their like mermaid half is like... Not the traditional mermaid you see. Mm-hmm. It's this long, monstrous tail. Well, it reminds me of like a sardine. Yeah, it's very fishy and like yeah. not Super in a fishy. fantasy sense, in like it's a not real sense. No. Yeah, you can smell those tails. Yes, and they do have a vagina you can have sex with. It's just way down this like nasty tail that could and it's kill you. So <laughs> gross. Yeah, it's so gross. So they get jobs as, <laughs> as these like burlesque singers um, who perform topless in this disco bar, and they're the hit of the town. They're not hiding yes. the fact that they're mermaids. They can walk around with these fake legs, but when they do that, they have, like, Barbie uh, smooth-over crotches. They can't have sex in that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns into, like, a reinterpretation of Hans Christian Andersen's mm-hmm. Little Mermaid, where, like, one trades their voice for human legs, and 
eventually dies because of the choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other one gets her revenge for her sister's death because of that. It's just unlike any other fuck. <laughs> like, like you said, as soon as I said Polish horror musical about mermaids, like, what other fucking it's, movie could this yeah, possibly be? The only be? one. And yeah, it's got the same kind of like visual horror aesthetic I love about the Neon Demon. I would say instead of the purple lighting that a lot of horror movies have from this decade, it's uh, this like sickly green aquatic horror lighting. It looks like fluorescent, like nastiness. Um, and it's like half, you know, traditional fairy tale and half like MTV. It's got these like music video sequences. It's a full blown musical. It's not like half assing it. The plot is forwarded in these like lengthy musical sequences. Triton is in it. He's like a punk singer at a nearby bar. <laughs> and through him, the movie continues to draw this line between like mermaid animality and like human behavior mm-hmm. and like maybe they're more alike than you think at first because uh, <laughs> everyone acts very terrible in this film there's yeah. a lot of violence and a lot of sexuality and a lot of disco and yeah it's just unique it's one of the most unique works i've seen from the decade what do y'all think about the lore it was baffling and in, in a wonderful, wonderful way. Yeah. It is one of those movies where you're watching it, you are thinking, who made this? Like, <laughs> who had the creative vision to bring this to life? It sort of had a Lynchian quality where mm-hmm. I'm just like, what? Again, like, what strange universe? Whose mind came up with this? And that goes a long way for me. I like how quickly people kind of acclimate to the idea of mermaids and how quickly they, like, take advantage of the beautiful voices that these women have and commercialize it. I I thought this was like a sick, twisted ABBA musical kind of, and I love ABBA. So, and (laughs) I had the image of silver dancing with the boy she loves one last time and then popping into sea foam. Like that was such a perfect melding of that Hans Christian um, mythology with like this weird eighties, aesthetic it was i thought it was and it feels like movie magic like that like right almost like never-ending story era yeah. of like fantasy filmmaking that we don't really see anymore yeah yeah the yeah. whole like vibe of it though like it felt like you were in a dark fish market the entire <laughs> oh, time oh you can smell this movie yeah, yeah like all the hues are like these weird like dull sea greens and stuff inside the club and yeah like just all the colors and things like that and i realized that a lot of movies i pick out for like praise are like aesthetically pleasing and you know mm-hmm. yeah novelties like you know polish disco mermaid horror musical is like a novelty in a string mm-hmm. of words right but i think the movie does have legitimate themes about like greed and feminism and yeah. mm-hmm. sisterhood yeah. and when the music industry yeah as well exploitation like financial exploitation like you were saying as soon yeah. as they hear this Beautiful otherworldly <laughs> animal. They're like, how can I turn this into right. money? Exactly. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a substantial work thematically on top of just being a beautiful object. When maybe it's not the first thing you would think of when you're thinking of like important art, art films and like important dramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the kind of thing I want. I want it to be a visual aesthetic assault on top of like having like real <laughs> themes as well. Like if you can do both of those, then I'm on board. What's your number four, Brittany? The Artist from 2011. I loved this movie when it came out. This year is the year that I really got interested in the Academy Awards, like legitimately. Like before I would just kind of like watch it and cool. It just, you know, whenever it would play on TV. And this year I was like, the artist better win some shit. And I was like really rooting for it. And it did super well. So it was just a really good year. 
for me, I guess. <laughs> Which a is lot, a good year. That's a good yeah, year. It was one of those movies movie. that like a lot of people really liked, and then when it won the Oscar, like people started like shitting on all of a sudden. Yeah, and I think why a lot of people didn't like it and didn't think it was deserving of an Oscar is because of its simplicity, but that's why I liked it so much. It's sort of like when you watch all these cooking shows, whenever, if you can make like a very simple recipe and you do it perfectly, you can win. And that's kind of like what this reminded me of where it's not, nothing's over the top. It's very simple, but it's very good and it's very entertaining. And it's just something I can watch over and over and over and over again. So love it. And also Jean Desjardins. Hello. (laughs) I love that man so much. And he's so good in here. Um, So the artist, it was a silent film and it was in black and white, which isn't something you come across too often, especially with, you know, Oscar nominated films. Um, And it sort of covers the death of silent films and the coming up of talkies or films with sound which is a really cool time period. And um, this film reflects on it in a very like sort of romantic comical way. And it's a very like kind of dark subject matter. (laughs) And there's a very cute dog in it. Oh, the dog is so cute. I think Jack Russell Terrier like adoptions went up. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So it's like, um, I think between him and wishbone right now for the uh, Jack Russell of the universe title. Yeah. Loved this film, and the soundtrack was very good. It's very prominent when I think about best films of the decade just mm-hmm. because of what it is. Before we started recording, I told y'all how I recently watched uh, some Buster Keaton movies. Oh, I watched yeah. Passion of Joan of Arc, another great silent film. When I was watching these movies, I was thinking about the artist. I was like, man, I haven't seen that since it like came out. And also like Sunset Boulevard, yeah. which yeah. I watched too, which is about the exact same thing about that transition from silent to talkies. No. And so is Singing in the Rain, which is like one of the great yeah. like movies. Oh my God. Oh, is this like a I pattern of great films? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hollywood loves making movies about itself. And right. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty significant time in their, you know, mythology. But like all these, I don't know, all these movies came out that I'm referencing came out like 70, 80 years ago. And then the artists sort of did feel like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you know, we've talked about this before, but let's talk about it again. Yeah. It's been a while, and there's a lot to, like, chew on there. And what I remember liking about the artist was, like, like you said, it was so light and entertaining and a crowd pleaser. Like, who wouldn't like that movie right. after watching Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Like, I can't see how what someone can say about it that would be bad. But then people did it, like Brandon was saying, like, after it won... I'm like, oh, everybody's just jealous because this silent black and white simple film kicked everyone's ass. Sorry. I, okay, we're on. We're coming up on the Oscars again, so if you don't mind me going on a slight rant here, like, <laughs> no, go for it. The bullshit about the Oscars is that they're never gonna pick your favorite movie every year. There's a lot of great movies that come out. Yeah, you can't expect that. Like, you don't think Knife and Heart's gonna be like Knife and Heart or Midsummer? Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, <laughs> Midsummer is gonna be How nominated. Dare they not nominate? Right. <laughs> So when they do reward a movie yeah. that is good, it feels good. And yes. that artist, like, getting money and attention mm-hmm. is a good thing. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Pe- people probably thought something was snubbed that year. I, I don't remember what else was nominated or what was passed over. Probably Children of Men, I would think. Some, something around those lines. Yeah. But, like, who fucking cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't need them to get it exactly right to your taste. You just need them to pick something that's decent. Because mm-hmm. there's enough years when, like, Green Book wins or Uh-oh, something yeah. where, like... Right. It's a legitimate villain. It just you know? feels, it feels <laughs> so good when you're like, wow, like something I like, like someone, some fancy schmancy 
group of critics agreed with me and yeah. i'm like i have potential See, that's the time where you should be legitimately upset though is when like a crash wins right. or a movie that is like objectively bad three billboards <clears throat> i like that oh i like that movie we can, we'll go, we can get into discussion. it another time i liked it but sometimes there's a reason to be upset but for the most part yeah there's tons of good movies mm-hmm. and just because your horse didn't win shouldn't be upset yeah, yeah. I'm not going to cry if Parasite doesn't win uh, this coming Sunday. Right. But, you know, I'd like it to win. It'd be great. I'm rooting for it, you know? And I do actually like movies about Hollywood. Me too. Like, (laughs) Hail Caesar was another one that I loved. That's my favorite one from this decade, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I like that genre. I don't know. I know it's a little, like, self-congratulatory, whatever, but... It's, like, fun and cheesy at the same time, Mm -hmm. where it's, like, you just... I don't know. Like, I indulge in that kind of stuff. Well, if you think about it, like, the reason we all talk about movies all the time is because we love movies. So why not make a movie on that topic? Like, yeah. You know? Yeah. The industry of how these, like, pieces of art and pieces of commerce get made is interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially because there's such, like, audacious, ridiculous mm-hmm. things. Like, especially, like, big Hollywood productions. We're going to get this huge pool of people together. We're going to corral them somehow. Artists and, and techs and directors and all these personalities. And we're going to make something together and then ship it out to everybody and it works and i don't know i, I want more silent films Absolutely. if that's possible yeah, yeah. silent films and another cool thing about the artist though that i'm trying to think if i'm getting this right but it was like the best picture like not foreign film yeah it was best, yeah, picture. best picture right so that's not you don't really see french films that often that are like lined up in that category mm-hmm. and jean de jardin is the first um, Frenchman to win Best Actor, which is wow. kind of crazy because when you think crazy. about like a lot of like great films, they're like French films. Right. It's a big mm. category, so mm. I thought that was really cool. Jean de Jardin and Hannah, what is your numero four? So my numero four is I think it's in the decade on a technicality because it was released in 2009 in its country and then 2010 in the United States. So um, it's Dogtooth. Directed mm. by Yorgos Lanthimos. Yes. I saw this movie when I think I was in 11th grade, maybe. And it was like the weirdest movie I'd ever seen up to that point. And it was the first Yorgos Lanthimos movie I saw. I think it was the first one that he directed to. So, of course, that would be the case. But it's dark. It's totally absurd and kind of funny. And it's it was the first time I'd ever seen his like deadpan contrived directing style and it was just bizarre and and wonderful and he's one of my favorite directors so like this being his my introduction to him just makes him makes this movie the one of the top for the year um so dogtooth is about a family living in an isolated suburban home um and the father and the mother have created this like totally isolated environment for their children they teach them words that don't mean what they mean in the common population like they teach them that c means basically a chair um so they're totally manipulating their um, perception of the outside world and the kids are sheltered and strange well and they're not even kids like the son is 22 yeah i think but i mean they're basically children um so the father conscripts a security guard that works in his office building or wherever he works to come and like have sex with the son. So 
the son can kind of like get rid of his sexual urges. And through this woman, the eldest daughter kind of starts to get hints of the outside world. In exchange for Cunnilingus, the eldest daughter gets these videotapes from Christina, the security guard, and she watches like these classic American movies, Jaws and Rocky and Flashdance. And then she starts acting out these scenes and and like these it's like she doesn't understand exactly what the dialogue means but she understands the emotional underpinnings and it's this language that she's never been able to use before because she's never learned how to communicate in a human way this results in like turmoil and violence in the family and eventually um she kind of escapes Potentially. After losing her dog tooth. Yeah, she not. Oh, God. Yeah, the damn she, dog tooth. She knocks her dog tooth out with a barbell. This movie is like brutal and strange. And I don't even know that it's necessarily like Yorgos Lanthimos's best film. I think The Favorite is like a better realized film. That's my favorite film I've seen from him. But I just like have to kind of pay homage to this movie because it, it really like informed my taste for the rest of my life. I don't know if I should say it now, but it's my number three. Really? Oh, yes. 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 Well, well, yes. <laughs> so that way we won't have to like come over yeah. a circle and be like, by the oh, way, we just great. talked about my number three. Um, but no, this is my number three is uh, Dogtooth. I liked it a lot because like never in my life have I felt like such a shitty person for laughing. Yeah. No, you, I like That too. is the Yorgos Lanthimos special. He's so good yeah. At that. Exactly. Yeah, it's like I like I watched this uh, like I think a couple years after it came out and then, you know, every now and then if it appears on some kind of streaming service, I'll be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, let me revisit no, this. this." It's just sort of um I don't want to say, like I always think of this is why homeschooling scares me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's like extreme homeschooling. There's no though. control. You, you know? can completely manipulate yeah. the kid's worldview. Totally, totally. And it's usually for Christian evangelism, but exactly. <laughs> it reminds me a lot. There's, I love reality TV, and there's this TLC has this new show called Welcome to Plathville. And it's this family and they're all like blonde hair, blue eyed living in South Georgia. Mm -hmm. And like, they're like, we haven't had a Coca-Cola. Who's Tom Brady? (laughs) Like, they're just so sheltered. And I'm like, oh my God, this is fucking dog tooth shit. And it's more so for their parents to control their kids. Right. And this movie like really like made me think about that a lot where it's, I don't know, made me think about myself where it's like how much of me is like natural versus like mm-hmm. my environment. Kind of like we need to talk about Kevin a little bit. Mm-hmm. All that comes back in Dogtooth. Yeah. And it's such like a a chill movie, even though it's like there's a lot of shit yeah. going on. Right. It's very like, oh. Like monotone. Monotone, very yeah. everything's very like matter of fact. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why am I thinking this is normal? His right. <laughs> dialogue delivery has no emotional yes. affect at yeah. all. Right. And so this actually reminded me of Robert Bresson. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I've had, like, similar reactions to Yorgos Lanthimos' movies. Like, I, I saw Alps, which is, I think, also maybe, like, the least cohesive film that I've seen from him. But just like in Alhazard Balthazar, I had, like, this super, like, I was watching it with James, and there's this one scene that I just, like, started sobbing. Like, it was one of the most like emotionally affecting like scenes I've ever seen. And I had to like leave the room. So first there's just something that really resonates with me about that style. It's like the ability to communicate 
with emotions is lost to them and they're trying so hard and yeah. I think like those scenes where the eldest daughter is like recreating these scenes from old movies are especially touching like there's one part where um, the father decides uh, Christina can't come to the house anymore because she's like ruining his children so he relegates like sexual gratification to the eldest daughter so he makes the daughter have sex with the son well it's like he makes the son yeah he chooses which is so fucked up yeah so he like sits in a bathtub blindfold and then he like feels the breasts of his sisters and then like grabs his sister's asses and decides which one he wants to have yeah it's it's horrific and then I'm very he, upset. Yeah, yeah. It, it's horrible. It's and then very sad. He has sex with the oldest sister, and then, like, the Incest oldest Brandon, sister. There you go. Yeah. yeah. We talk about this a lot. Yes. On this podcast. It's, it's back. We do not know why. <laughs> <laughs> so, the after they're done, the oldest sister is, like, obviously uncut. Like, she's raped. And she says, like, she recites this old movie dialogue. Like, you better stay the fuck out of my neighborhood. If you do this again, I'm going to beat you up for the sake of my daughter. Like, it doesn't make any sense in the situation, but it's like retribution that she's communicating. And she finally has some form of communication for that feeling. I just love, love, love this movie. Yeah, I think this is probably his least refined movie. Like, I feel like he's gotten more refined Mm -hmm. as he's gone on. You know, with the lobster killing of a sacred deer, and then the favorite, yeah. which was on my top twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah! Um, hell yeah! Because <laughs> at least with the with the favorite, it's like the humor is up front and center. But I think to appreciate those movies, you really do have to know where he started from. Mm-hmm. And Dogtooth is like the foundation where all of these films come yeah. from. Yeah, and it's like that really. Like the breaking down of social norms, the emptiness of communication, the themes in this movie are the themes that he carries throughout all of his films. Mm-hmm. To appreciate the favorite, you know, the more refined stuff, you got to appreciate Dogtooth. And that yeah. it's a more like archaic version of what he's been doing his entire career. All right, James, what was your number three? Uh, so my number three is from 2013. Uh, it's a movie called Upstream Color, directed by Shane Carruth. His first film was Primer, which I did like. But this movie, and this is, again, like going to the subjective, the personal. This came at a time in my, like, being really into film where I was into, like, European art house films. And I didn't know what an American art house film would look at, like. And then I saw this movie... And it totally captivated me, and it was transcendent is the only way I can describe it. Like, the way it made me feel was, like, quasi-spiritual. Like, I didn't understand the movie. Like, I've seen it probably five or six times now. I don't still don't fully understand it. Do you understand? Yes. <laughs> I, I I do in, like, a... Well, we'll, we'll get into, like, okay. what everything... That's the, what I like cycle. about it is how understandable it is. But... Upon first, second, even third watch for me, I was still trying to figure out the puzzle pieces. and like, what does this movie, how does it all connect together? And in the beginning, it didn't really matter because I was just sort of swept away by the, the score, by the striking visuals. 
But there is a plot here, and Brandon, I would like you to help me. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, I mean, just what you were just saying from the score and the visuals, I do think it's worth noting that Shane Ruth wrote, directed, scored, All- did the cinematography, edited, and acted in the film as one of the main stars. Like, <laughs> as far as, like, an tourist vision goes, right. like, this is a controlled, like... One person show. I mean, other people like Amy Simons is his like co-star. But that's he had a co-editor, it. but like he had his hands in every single aspect of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and he has been struggling to get anything made besides these two features. I think if he gets a third one, it will be his last, just because yeah. he's so tired of trying to get this off. The well, ground. I've heard he has a script that's been in development for years. This huge, big budget, three-hour sci-fi film that people have flirted with about making. the shipping industry. The or shipping industry. I don't. <laughs> I honestly don't like. Yeah, I, don't get I it. trust him to do it. Like, if I had the money, I would give it to him. Mm-hmm. But I would so, love to get into it. Basically, there's this like chemical that grows in this particular type of orchid. It is harvested by this one man who realizes that it has mind control abilities. When someone ingest, ingests it, they're super suggestible. Mm-hmm. The one man we know who knows this exploits it and he has people the thief the thief is his, is his only character name and he uses it to influence people to basically throw all of their life's finances to him mm-hmm. while they're under the spell and when they come out of it they have no recollection of like what they've been doing for the last month and he's basically gives them these like menial repetitive tasks mm-hmm. to keep their brains busy and they're basically his like mental prisoner for that like period of time what we see over the course of the film is a life cycle of this chemical and it's it becomes a parasite because he injects it in these grubs that like he mm-hmm. makes people swallow people who have been affected by it are connected and don't know why they're connected like if i saw you on the subway and you're a complete stranger and we lock eyes i'm like i'm connected to this person i yeah. don't know why they're also connected to this pig farm mm-hmm. and they don't know why but the movie keeps establishing this connection between the people who have been injected with this thing and these pigs the reason we find we find out later the reason they're connected is because another man who is aware of this life cycle the sound engineer he is removing these parasites from these people and injecting them into these pigs he enjoys doing this because he can sort of jump into people's lives by observing the pigs like by being near them he can see into their daily lives and he's a lonely farmer with this pig farm Aww. he doesn't sell the That's pigs very sad <laughs> It's a little sad, but he's also exploiting them yeah. just like the thief in his own way because they're unknowingly part of this like cycle and confused why they're connected to these mm-hmm. pigs and like why their emotions are controlled by these farm animals that they never see while he's like getting enjoyment out of it. Not financial gain, but mostly just enjoyment. Emotional gain. Yeah, one's right. financial gain, too. the other's emotional gain. So these pigs are pigs on a farm. He's not breeding them. He just wants to be connected to the people. So yeah. whenever they have litters of pigs, he dumps the litter into the river, drowns them like a bag of cats. And they float downstream, and the pigs get caught up on the like sides of the river, mm-hmm. and infect the orchids that grow out of the tree roots yeah. and that's and the, the beginning of the life the cycle, cycle yeah. starts again so it's a complete life cycle of a parasite more or less uh it's a chemical and a parasite as, mm-hmm. as it goes through its life cycle what i love about this movie is how clear that is from moment to moment and how i'm never lost while watching it because the editing and the storytelling and the cinematic like language is so fucking clear and like no one can tell a story this abstract right. and this like 
confounding mm-hmm. in such a clear emotion emotionally affecting way as Shane Carruth. This is in my top ten for the years. I'm not. I'm not bringing it up later. That's kind of why I didn't mind going on a spiel about no, it. No, no. I, I was actually so scared when I picked this one. I was like, <laughs> I have to explain this plot. Okay. <laughs> and I'm so glad you did it for me. But you're exactly right. It's like that art house, like obfuscated plot mm-hmm. where, like, what is going on? We don't. But why I said it, it's like an American version of that is like in a European art house model. We want to keep the facts from you. I see this as like the height of like modern American art house cinema in that it actually like spells out all the facts. They're there for you. Mm-hmm. And you just have to discover them. And you have to watch the movie a couple times. The first time I saw it, I was just like, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> I got to immediately rewatch it. And it was the second or third time I was actually taking notes of, like of the cycle. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, this... It's there. Tracks, yeah. <laughs> All the information is there for you. You just have to discover it. And that to me is like beautiful art house filmmaking. And I really want this guy to make another movie. Like it's so frustrating. Has he not made one since this movie? No, he can't get no. funding. Oh man. I'm very appreciative I saw this in the theater. I think oh, a lot of people's man. roadblocks with this is if you watched it at home, the wealth of uh, distractions, like it's so hard to watch a full-length movie and not picking up your cell phone. Yeah. If you do that during this movie, you're going to be lost fucking right. forever. You need every beat. And mm-hmm. he does hold your hand and walk you through it in this like, clear way. Right. But watching it at home without with, with any kind of distraction it would be very hard, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that like he did Primer first, which is kind of the quintessential like hard sci-fi yeah. of the decade. And I don't really dig Primer. It's a little too heady for me. This one's more emotional. Yeah, it's emotional and like... It trusts the audience to do the work. Like, you have to put in some effort to get something Mm -hmm. out of this movie, but it's there for you. But it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. The one thing I love about this movie is, like, you know, you get that feeling sometimes when you meet somebody, like, that your life is tied to them somehow. And it's this very romantic idea, you know, like, love at first sight, whatever, like, some connection. So... I love the idea of, like you know, there are these folk tales that tell you, like, oh, why it thunders and why, you know, why, like, there are rivers and mountains. I love the idea of, like, this being the folk tale for that feeling. Like, oh, so when you feel a connection with someone, it was because you were drugged and all of your life savings were taken away and then your, like, parasite was taken to a pig farm. And, and that's how you know that you have a connection with somebody. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it definitely creating a <laughs> mythology. I need a damn movie. Exactly. <laughs> I'll lend it to you. I have a Blu-ray. Yeah. Oh, shut yeah. up. Hell yes, I would love that. And I also, I love the relationship between the two main characters and how they're, it's like they meld together sometimes. Like, they're confused about... Like, someone will be talking about a memory and the other person will say, like, that was my memory. You stole mm-hmm. it. And it's like they're, they're, they're so entwined that they can't really, like, pull themselves out from each other. Not to reveal too much about my personal life, but that specific kind of codependency <laughs> is, like, something right. that I have experienced <laughs> many times. Happened. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I'll say is, like, there's some really beautiful images in this movie outside of all the kind of, like, I don't know the plot stuff we're talking about just visually it's striking Mm -hmm. and the score i remember this was one of the first movies where i really paid attention to the score and like it's so interesting there's like kind of wind chimes and it's sort of 
trails off cool. and very ambient. It's a fucking cool movie. I yeah. love this movie. So my number three was a film by a British filmmaker. Oh. It's called The Duke of Burgundy uh. Uh, by Peter Strickland, who recently we praised with In Fabric from 2019. Mm. It's his previous film about a lesbian couple who um, have a BDSM relationship. That sounds like a very commercial prospect. This is like the most art house mm. version of that where like, like if a few bros went into the theater looking for like the lesbian kink right. movie, this movie does not deliver what they want. It details the romance between these two women. One is significantly older than the other, at least noticeably older. And she is in this dominant position as a woman who owns a home. The other one is introduced as her servant who like scrubs the floors and cleans her underwear mm-hmm. and like does the daily like domestic tasks around the house. Mm. And you see their, like, daily routines play out where, like, the stern older woman is, like, issuing these orders. Mm -hmm. And then we see the same scenario play out a second time where it's from the young woman's perspective and she's telling the older woman to boss her around like this. And it's the classic, like, kinky relationship dynamic where it's like, I tell you to tell me what to do and Mm -hmm. it gets me off. What we see over the course of the movie is that the younger person is really into this kinky role play that, you know, defines their relationship the older woman has a lot of sexual fun with this, but also needs like the sort of you know tender mm-hmm. daily maintenance romance to go with it. And the younger one doesn't quite get that yet because she's like still like excited by this new dynamic. Yeah. Peter Strickland, between In Fabric and Barbarian Sound Studio, has this sort of like art house Euro horror aesthetic from like the seventies that also appears here in these like hyper sexualized sequences involving like butterfly wings mm-hmm. and like mannequins and all, like this like femme universe he established here it's a very natural femme insular world i don't think there's any men in this movie but there's plenty of like butterflies and books and lingerie <laughs> and like uh grubs growing out of the grass right. and just like it's this like natural cool. world mm-hmm. that these two women have established together and it's also this kinky like sexual dynamic on top of it the best quote I've ever heard about like how kink relationships work is from Bob Flanagan from that movie Sicko, that mm-hmm. documentary. And he's reading a poem and he's like, I'll do anything I tell you to tell me to do and I'll do it just for you. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of this cheeky like version of that kind of relationship dynamic. Mm-hmm. I think this movie embodies that in this very real way. Yeah. And I think it gets into this larger idea of how all relationships work which is this sort of like role play and like service exchange mm-hmm. um, on top of like daily maintenance, like actual like cuddling and like coddling and, you know, making sure the other person's okay and has what they need. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's this beautiful aesthetic film. It's sexy and it's very femme and just like also is cheeky in the way that in fabric is like it has a perfume by credit uh <laughs> even though you cannot smell the perfumes right. used in the film oh, like, cool. it's a very jokey Ooh. kind of thing on top of being like actually indulgent in those sensory pleasures mm-hmm. and I, I really love it a lot yeah i think this is one of the best like bdsm movies it is not like exploitative at all it is not professing bdsm to be any anything that that it isn't it is sexy and it's also like showing a real relationship between two people and I was totally duped into thinking that this was like a straightforward like dominant submissive relationship in the beginning like oh this older woman she's strict uptight and she's ordering her maid around and then as the movie goes on their relationship kind of unfolds for what it is and it's kind of tragic like this older woman is like tearing up while she's giving this younger woman orders that she doesn't want to give because she just wants to be held and hold. And 
I don't know. I just, I love movies that can show like kink in the context of reality. How many kink movies are out there where like the bottom's actually in charge? Right. You know, exactly. like that is like a rare thing to actually mm-hmm. see on the screen. Yeah. Uh, maybe Secretary is like the only other yeah. one that approaches that. Mm-hmm. That's the only one I can think yeah, of. Yeah, it's a rare like thing to come across. Well, it's funny you brought up Sicko too because that also gets it, I think, sort of the same thing as like there's a complexity to that dynamic. You know, in that movie, mm-hmm. it's like Bob Flanagan is, I guess, the bottom. But he gets to a point where he just wants, like, human connection. It's like, okay, can we stop? Like, can we just, like, be... Right. Let's drop the facade for a minute. I need to actually be held. Yeah. Right. And his partner can't do it. Uh, And that's tragic. In the same way that, like, Duke of Burgundy has that tragic element to it. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're playing this game, sort of, but there's, like, a human behind that. Right. And we need to fulfill each other's needs. And sometimes we need to drop the, like, act and be one-on-one with each other as humans. Yeah. Yeah. Like people are never just one thing with one set of needs. Those shift over time and then they can shift back. Like, okay, I'm done with cuddling. Now we can, we can continue the, the fantasy, but so you just have to like follow the rhythm of the relationship. The other thing I remember from this movie is you already kind of touched on this, but just how visually beautiful Mm -hmm. it is. Like, all of his movies um, in Fabric, Barbarian Sound Studio, like... He also did this Bjork documentary called Biophilia. That's really <gasps> oh, great. He did, oh, he did man. that. Biophilia, like, live okay. film. It's really good. Him and, like, Jonathan Glazer, like, one of those directors where it's, like, they barely make movies, but whenever they do, it's, like, this, like, event, you know, for me. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, a new one from, from this British Yeah, you his, know. his aesthetic yeah. is yeah. killer. Yeah. Uh and I will say, like, the visual style fits right in with that um, butterfly. The way that, like, butterfly specimens are pinned to a board. Oh, yeah. Th- this movie plays with that a lot, where, like, these beautiful images are sort of pinned to the screen in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, like, the woman is pinned to this relationship in this, right. like, sort of, like, constricting way. Yeah. And things are presented one at a time as these, like, gorgeous images. Right. And you sort of stare at them in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels very clinical in that way but it does have this like emotional rush to it under the surface that i love as well yeah it's like a delicate entrapment yeah what was your number three hannah so i i struggle with my list a lot especially at three and four but i finally settled upon raw which was released uh, in 2017 love raw. um it was directed by julia de Cornau. um it's a french belgian horror movie Um, about a woman, Justine, going into veterinary school. She is a vegetarian, and she gradually becomes aware of her desire to eat meat and not just, (laughs) like, cubes of cooked beef, but, like, raw rabbit and then the finger of her sister and then um, the arm of a corpse at the morgue. This movie kind of reminded me of, like, a horror version of Wetlands. It has that kind of, like... Uh, it's like very physical there's a lot of there's this scene where her sister applies wax to her uh, vagina and then she's trying to cut it off with scissors there are these like very close intimate like bodily interactions and this movie kind of gets at the thing that I love about hereditary too and that there are these currents that are passed between families like it turns out that this meat eating um, impulse is passed, I think, matrilineally. Like, her her mother yep. has um, taken bites out of her father, which is revealed at the very end of the movie. <laughs> um, and that 
you know, you come into your own, like with the things that have been passed down to you and you find ways to, to hide it. And it kind of like, it becomes nascent at the time when her sexuality is, is kind of brimming too. And like feasting on sexually and like literally are kind of tied together. Uh, this movie is gorgeous. Um, the lead actress is fantastic. And it was like one of my favorite feminist horror movies of the decade. This was my favorite movie in 2017 when we did our top. Yeah. Yeah. Memories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just remember being blown away by it so mm-hmm. much because it's so raw. <laughs> you know, there's no way, to, other way to describe it. I was just mm-hmm. so like blown away by it. What I love about this movie is like the metaphor is so hard to pin down, but it feels mm-hmm. so true about a lot of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's something about when you're out on your own, especially in college. Yeah. Uh, and there's like a lot of things that awaken in you all at once. Right. And she has this very controlled home life, like mm-hmm. both sexually and like the fact that she is vegetarian yes. by like orders of her parents right, for force. like trying to like stamp down this thing that's right. going to awaken her eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's a sexual hunger to that. Yeah. And there's like a self-actualization like hunger to that. And also, I don't want to put too much into this, but there's like, there's a certain aspect of like all of our mental illnesses and like mental Mm -hmm. like problems that come out around that age when you're like on your own for the first time and your safety net is like outside of your realm. I think there's like this like hereditary kind of like... uh, I mean, the, the adjective, right. not the right. film, uh, kind of like <laughs> mental struggle that's yes. part of that. And it's like this like biological mental illness thing that yeah. like awakens in her as well. And I don't want to single out any of those as like the theme of the film. Mm-hmm. It just all is represented in like when you go out on your own for the first time and all these things are allowed to come out unfiltered without anyone stamping them down yeah. on your behalf. Right, right. And that was really impressive to me, like how it could mean all these things at once. Mm-hmm. Right. Like just because you're not eating people, it doesn't mean you can't relate. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Yes, it's something that like everybody at some point in their life, well, at that point. Yeah. Um, those college years, you have experience for sure. And it reminded me of times like with my friends and personally where – like my parents, specifically my mom, would like warn against behaving in particular ways. And then I would follow her up until high school. I got to college and then I totally threw all of it out the window mm-hmm. and I suffered the consequences. And then I would come back to her and she would say, yeah, I made all those same mistakes. And everything that she did up until that point is totally recontextualized. It's not because she was trying to be a dictator or anything. It's that she had suffered through the same things and she was trying to warn me. But mm-hmm. ultimately, if it's not going to be a dog tooth scenario where you live at home until right. you're 30, she cannot control for that coming out right. of you. And exactly. it's just something you have to live through on your own. And it's fucking scary. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. There's desires and like, brain patterns that come out of you mm-hmm. when you're on your own that like you don't really have control over and it's kind of terrifying yeah yes. I, I see that in this movie a lot yeah definitely i mean i'm not a woman who like went i don't know and there's something <laughs> like a feminist angle to it that i'm never going to be able to identify with mm-hmm. on like a personal level but that sort of aspect of like being on your own and like these things coming out from within you and not being able to control them right. is like universally terrifying i mm-hmm. think but that's mm-hmm. what was refreshing about the body horror 
kind of thing. It's like typically, you know, we think about David Cronenberg and it's usually coming from like a male perspective, even if it's Videodrome and there's like a gun pointing out it's some like phallic yeah. or like dead ringers. You know, there's some like male angle to like body horror usually. And what I loved about this movie was like it's coming at it from a feminist mm-hmm. angle. And like there's horrors to the female body. Yeah. Too. It's not like it was refreshing to see and not just from a male perspective yeah. it's yeah. like everybody's bodies are horrific waxing is no joke no jo- yeah yeah that that seems really upsetting <laughs> so just you describing it uh, like my body tensed yeah. up i know i got like goosebumps but i do want to point out this movie was sold when it first came out as this like gross out body horror like mm-hmm. gross out yeah. like and cannibal there were, like, girl and... there were like barf bags <laughs> like passed out of, and i don't really feel like it's that kind no. of movie it's not no. trying to upset you in that like new French extremity thing right. that we saw from the decade earlier, like it uses the body horror to upset you in these like very purposeful ways, mm-hmm. but I don't think its main goal throughout is to gross you out. No. Right? No, that's uh, probably the studio that was just trying to like that's good marketing. Get some, yeah. yeah, good marketing. Ah, you'll never very, believe your like, eyes. William Castle to hand out like bar bags. Yeah. <laughs> so my number two is certified copy. It is a. French-Italian production from 2010, so the very beginning of the decade. Mm-hmm. It's directed by an Ar- Iranian director, Abbas Kiratsalmi. I'm probably butchering that. And my introduction to this film, I went to kind of this liquidation sale at the Pontchartrain Center of all these library movies. Oh. And I like, I got this movie for like a dollar. Yes. I was like, oh, it's Criterion Collection. Like, it's probably good. And this movie has kind of haunted me ever since. (laughs) And uh, probably seen about three or four times. And every time I watch it, I end up thinking about it for like a week straight. So the plot of the movie is you have this art critic. And his whole, the beginning of the movie, he gives this speech. uh, You know, he has his new book coming out. He talks about how authenticity doesn't matter. A lot of... Art is like a reproduction or it's a copy of an authentic piece of art, but it doesn't really matter. He basically mm-hmm. is saying authenticity is like bullshit. And this woman is in the crowd, played by Juliette Binoche, who I love. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I love yeah. everything mm-hmm. she's in. And she obviously is like fascinated with him and what he's saying. And she gives her number to his publisher. And she's an antique dealer. And he comes and goes to her antique shop. And she's like, you know what? Like, let me just kind of show you around Italy. And the first half of the film is this kind of very breezy light. They're just kind of driving around Italy, talking about art, you know, authenticity, these sort of like philosophical concepts. And about halfway through the film, they stop at this Italian coffee shop. And there's a shift, a really profound shift in the movie where the woman running the shop is like, oh, you know, you and your husband seem happy. And she basically like starts to play act as if they're married. And it's sort of, then you start to start to wonder like, what is real? Are they play acting in the beginning? Are they a married couple that's playing as if they're meeting for the first time? Or are they not a married couple that are just sort of like play acting as if they're mm-hmm. married. Yeah. And the rest of the movie is this 
very ambiguous like what is the dynamic of this relationship are they together are they not what is real what is fake what is authentic what is the copy so all this sounds very sort of dry philosophical but the performances in this movie really bring it to like a gut level where you feel like there is something going on here something deep and profound and eventually it becomes clear like there is something very real here and she like invites him to go to where they spent their honeymoon and she's like kind of begging him to drop this artifice he can't quite do it and there's like this tragic element of them not quite being able to connect this all sounds very like heady and intellectual but this movie more than any other movie this decade like every time i watch it it hits me in my like in my gut it gets me emotionally but it also brings up so many questions about the nature of art of relationships Mm -hmm. of reality it's like a very heady intellectual film that also is like touching and very human and every time i watch it i end up pondering it for weeks on end and i just love this movie so deeply and me and brandon have talked about like what is a james movie what's a brandon movie and you've talked a lot about like what your kind of aesthetic is it doesn't sound as cruel as them but like i would put this in the realm of like cachet or la mustache yeah absolutely definitely Yeah. yeah Just listening to you talk about it, I know nothing about and the, it. And those are my favorite, some of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. But this one, more than Cachet and La Moustache, like, I think it's the performances that really connect with me and bring it outside the intellectual into like yeah. the purely human. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fantastic thing about this movie is that it is totally rich in all of those realms. Like, if you want to think of it on a purely intellectual, philosophical um, level, then you can do that for days. And if you want to look at the relationship between these two people and how complicated and and kind of like tortured it is, then you can do that for days. And that's my favorite part of the movie. So you can look at their relationship as, like James was saying, either like the play acting that they're strangers or play acting that they're a married couple. But so I think it's kind of a gradient throughout the film. In the beginning, you know, they have this kind of light banter. There's this like thin line of tension between them. She brings him to her antique dealership. It's kind of this dank basement. And she she says, oh, yeah, I thought you would enjoy being here. You know, it's the, these are the things that you talk about in your work. And he says, oh, no, you know, I like to keep a distance between my work and the real world. So at the outset, there is this like thread of conflict between them. But it's kind of kept, you know, on the surface. And then it deepens and deepens as the movie goes on to the you know, they're in this restaurant together. He's complaining about the wine and she's telling him like she's just put on red lipstick in the bathroom and these beautiful earrings to try to get him to notice her and they're talking about the last 15 years of their relationship together and how he's never there for her son um so it just to me it becomes kind of like unavoidable to see them as a married couple trying to maybe rekindle their relationship but james was telling me about this article that he was reading about it and how it's like in a relationship you are always 
deeply connected to the person you're with and you know them and they are a stranger to you. Like, so both of those realities exist simultaneously. And I think that is like perfectly communicated and realized and beautiful. You can interpret this film either way. Yeah. It's either strangers pretending to be lovers of 15 years or lovers of 15 years pretending to be strangers and both are true Mm -hmm. and both have meaning in the sense of like, like Hannah was saying, like you can both be totally in love with someone and be married for 15 years and be a complete utter stranger to them. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like pretty profound and like very real in how relationships actually work. We can never really know what the other person is thinking or feeling. And um, this movie it is ambiguous in the same way, like you were saying with La Moustache or some of these other European art house films that I love. But what's different about this one is like, it doesn't feel clinical and detached. It's both. It's like, I can feel it just like any other romance story where I feel it in my gut, mm-hmm. but I also can like ponder it for days on end. Yeah. And that to me, like when you're talking about like, what is a James movie? That's it for me. It's like, I need the philosophical, I need the heady intellectual stuff, but I also need that like gut level emotional feeling. And this certified copy gives it to me so richly and deeply that, yeah, this movie has stuck with me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think it even kind of talks about the intellectual versus the emotional experience because like you said the the man is um an author and he's written this book and he he intellectualizes these ideas but he doesn't actually want to grapple with them in real life even the ideas that that he makes his living off of like he's uncomfortable when he's in the antique dealership and then she brings him to this museum with an original copy which is a piece of art that art historians thought was an original and then turned out to be a copy and she thinks he's going to think this is really interesting and he's he just says something like oh you know i have my work and then i shut off and i don't want to deal with it on when i'm you know out on my own and she says well you could have just like looked at this with me for a moment and then you know turn your mind off to your work yeah so she's very much trying to bring him in in the real world she's very much in tune with her own emotions she's mercurial but she is very passionately engaged with the reality of life and he's like not engaged if you think that they are in a relationship he's not (laughs) engaged with his child he's not engaged with her he's just in this like fantasy world of platonic ideals Um, and there is something that you lose out on when when you live in this purely intellectualized world. You're removed from real life. Exactly. So it is, I mean, it is a really like beautiful melding of those two themes. The big theme is like, is kind of like, is everything derivative? And I was thinking about in film, it's like everything is a copy of a copy. You know, we've seen Mm -hmm. the same stories over and over. We've watched enough movies together. Especially as people who watch a lot of genre films. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we see the same stories told over and over. And I think the male character in this film takes the cynical route mm-hmm. of like, it's like sort of nihilistic. Like it doesn't have any meaning. It's all the same shit over and over and over again. Whereas the female, the Julia Pinoche character is coming at it from passion and like truly loving art and be like, yeah, it's, 
derivative and it's a copy of a copy, but it's still profound mm-hmm. and real. And to me, the fact that this movie came out like the first year of this new century and it feels like or it's a new decade and we feel like we've seen the same movies over and over and again, mm-hmm. but we haven't. They're the same stories told in refreshing new ways with new characters and you should engage with art in a way and not have this cold detachment from it. And that that's something I've always thought about since I've seen this movie and it keeps coming up every time I view more films. So anyway, love certified <laughs> copy. What was your number two? Okay. This is like the one outlier on my list where it's not some like sexual hedonism horror show. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh wow. Uh, this is me like stepping outside of my zone. <laughs> Your comfort zone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From 2016, the film is called 20th Century Women. Oh. It's so good. Great. Oh. Instead of like a hedonistic sexual horror show, <laughs> it is a insular drama between a few people who live in this boarding house in late 70s California. Near the beach. This woman, played by Annette Benning, is like mm. the perfect mom. It's kind of like her character. <laughs> she's a single mother who's a little older than she expected to have a kid at. And as she's aging and her kid is reaching like sexual maturity, she's like worried that her son does not have like a role model of what it means to be a good man. And I think one of the topics of the 2010s in general, and something we've been talking about, just gender in general, but in a more like pinpointing sense, like what is good masculinity versus what is like actively corrosive masculinity. And this movie, Annette Benning is sort of beside herself and like, how do I raise a good person out of this son who's like generation I can't really relate to? She has these borders that pay, you know, pay the rent for the house she owns. One of them is Greta Gerwig, who's like this college student, who's like this artsy fartsy kid who like comes through her life. Uh, Billy Crudup, plays this like sort of handyman mechanic, like blue collar type who's also living there. And then the son has a girlfriend who lives around the corner played by Elle Fanning who sneaks into the house a lot. It might as well be living there. Mm-hmm. Same year she was in Neon Demon. She had a great year that year. <laughs> and she even goes to all three of these people like behind her son's back, like a betrayal of trust even. Teach my son to be a good man <laughs> this one summer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read, just indulge me, like, I'm going to read from my notes just the topics that this very simple setup, I think, touches on. Punk culture solidarity. What it means to be a good man in modern times. The 1980s is a tipping point for American culture. The shifts in status of women in culture since the Great Depression. The history of life on planet Earth. Our significance in the great expanse of the universe and like how small we are Mm -hmm. in the great expanse of things. This director, Mike Mills, has only made a few movies. He's been trying this like video art style thing where he like pins these images to the screen and talks in monologue over Mm -hmm. the images. And the way the characters are introduced in this movie, like Greta Gerwig will enter the screen and he'll tell her entire life story from conception to death. And that's the first thing you're introduced with. And then he pulls back to show you the information in in between those bookends and Mm -hmm. like kind of fills in the gaps as you get to know her in this sort of like moment in time and he does that for each and every character and pins these like personas and these images to the screen and like sort of pulls out and shows you everything from like outside of the planet and then pulls back in to show you like everyone's like in the moment way they relate to the world and how they move through it and i've heard a lot of 
you know, best of the decade extrapolation on these movies like The Tree of Life or Boyhood Mm -hmm. that try to, like, explain how the world works and how we relate to each other in this world. And I don't get it. (laughs) Every time someone picks out a movie and, like, says, like, this is how the universe works and this is how I relate to the world, I feel so outside of, like, what they relate to. Mm -hmm. But... Mike Mills and even his wife, uh, Miranda July, who does the same sort of like experimental video art aesthetic. Uh, her movie, The Future, I think is one of the other great works of this decade um, that I don't expect will come back up later in this conversation. So we'll throw that out there too. <laughs> I think he touches on it here in a way that I got and I was locked into. And yeah, it broke through my usual like genre biases and stuff. I would normally not pick out a movie like this. Mm-hmm. If you watch the trailer for it, it just looks like some, some dance fluff. And it's really not that. Like it really just describes how i feel like the world is so yeah Mm. i really connect on this like emotional like almost philosophical level that i have a hard time tapping into with other movies and for some reason this just really hit me especially you know as a man who does not like the masculine parts of myself like there's just something (laughs) about like how do i use this energy and this space i'm filling up in this like productive ethical way Mm -hmm. it's hard to do that and what does that mean and what do I do with like the privilege and the space I have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting a little teary eyed talking about it right now. But like, there's something about that that this movie touches on that yeah, I really just nice. don't think anything else approaches. Um, and I really love it. Well, so this movie was ironically like a template for me of how to be a mom or like how to how to mother a son because I I do feel like you want to raise. A good man, and especially for Annette Benning, like not. I guess the stereotype is you have to have like a man in the house to teach a man how to live. But I, I think that you need like women in the house to teach a man how to live. And there are so many scenes in that. There's this one scene where Greta Gerwig brings him to this like punk concert. Oh God! That felt so true to growing up and exploring yourself and your identity in this like really positive way it it was just like this really beautiful moment and it's so important to know how to like cultivate goodness in the people that you're bringing into the world i mean the different ideologies represented between annette benning and her like first Mm -hmm. wave and second wave feminism and there's something about that like punk culture that i think this movie touches on what it means and really digs into it Mm -hmm. it's not just set dressing like there's this great sequence where Annette Benning and Billy Crudup listen to a Black yeah. Flag album <laughs> yeah. and a um, Raincoats album, I mm-hmm. think, back to back. And, like, really talk about the different textures between what punk yeah. is. And she's, like, really trying to get into the right. mind of her kid. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, what it means to be a good man in the modern world has been talked about a lot, specifically with Fred Rogers in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the, the Mr. Rogers documentary yeah. and the Tom Hanks movie that just came out. That's a topic that's just sort of in the air and swirling around. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think this movie like really like looks through it through different waves of feminism's lens and like through like punk culture lenses and like really depicts a part it through this sort of kaleidoscopic like cultural like approach. Yeah, what I love about this movie and sort of how I feel too is like no one person can help a man become a fully realized man. What it really takes and what Annette Bening's character in this movie is so profound in doing is like exposing someone to like a variety of opinions and Mm -hmm. aesthetics and that's truly what makes someone grow as a human and like makes a man grow into being a true like man in like a real sense and 
you got the the punk thing, the first second wave feminism. It's all there and it's all like free and it's all like a conversation. Yeah, that to me was like very profound in this movie. And it's never like didactic, you know, right. it's always like exposure to goodness in all of its forms and permutations. No one's right. Yeah. Like everyone has positive things to offer to this kid and no one's, they those positive things conflict with each other in a way where it's like, I can't be right and you can't be right at the same time because we're so opposing. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, they're both right. Yeah. And like, Annette Benning's way of like thinking about gender and like how to be ethical in the modern world is very like antiquated, which doesn't work in some ways, especially in like sexual exp- expression, mm-hmm. but really works in this like way that she learned because she grew up during the Great Depression where communities raised kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we need to like really shed i think as people and i'm really getting into like therapy terms here is that (laughs) we can't be all things to someone like you can't be in a relationship with someone and be like everything they need and feeling like you're failing and like providing everything that person needs is a self-defeating feeling right and it takes a community to really fulfill like a person's needs and yeah, the the more global our communities get in like the internet age, we're sort of losing that. Like the, we need these like insular communities to help each other and like hold each other up. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm getting emotional again. Anyway, <laughs> this movie's like really touching on these like I the only other work I could describe it at, and I don't think it's similar in any way, is like his dark materials, the novels. Oh. Like, the first time I read those, I was like, oh, wow, this is how the universe works. And I've never heard anyone describe it this Mm -hmm. way before, but I think this is accurate. Like, watching this, I'm like, this is how interpersonal relationships in modern America work and how they should work in, like, an ideal communal sense. And I just wish more people saw the world the way this movie sees the world, you know? There's a lot that's been written about how polarized everything is nowadays. And what this film does so beautifully is to show like everyone has something to offer Mm -hmm. like the baby boomers versus like the gen xers or the hipsters versus the punk like they all have something to offer like no one is invalid if we just still like don't dismiss other people's like viewpoint yeah we we can create some like beauty in this world but like we gotta not hate each other and i don't know now I'm getting all like hippie. And, well, <laughs> I think that's that's something that punk touches on. That's on that chosen family touches yeah. on. Like, yeah, building a meaningful community where people actually care about each other and take care of each other. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do in the modern world, and it's something we should all strive towards. Yeah, mm. agreed. Woo! <laughs> that was deep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Brittany, what was your number two of the decade? <laughs> wow, my number two is "Call Me by Your Name." Which came out in 2017, and it's just a very, very good coming-of-age romance. And I was super obsessed with this when it came out. Mm -hmm. Like, I went to see it with one of my really good friends, and, like, I just remember, like, we had text messages going back and forth for months, and it was, like, just like in CYBMN, like whatever mm-hmm. the acronym right. for calling by your name is. And I'm like, God, what's happening? And then I'm like looking on Etsy to find like Ilio and Oliver stuff. And it just like blew my world. This movie is just gorgeous. It's super, it's beautiful. It's filmed in Northern Italy in the summer in like the eighties. 
and the nature shots and just everything is so vibrant that you can really like feel everything. It's like a, a sensory overload mm-hmm. experience. A lot of linen. Yes, lots of linen. It's almost like a Garden of Eden, like just the, them eating fruit oh, off right. the trees and like yes. just enjoying the natural world. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. very much so. It's just like, God, I'm like, this is like what I want to be doing with my life. Right. Like the eroticism and the romance in the movie is amazing. But in the whole time you're watching it, you know it's not going to work out. So you have this like weird feeling of dread the entire time, even though mm-hmm. like this beautiful thing is like blossoming in the front of you. So it's just this weird, I don't know, I don't think I've ever had that um, joy and depression at the same time when watching a movie. <laughs> so it's really memorable in that sense. But yeah, like it, it's it's funny to me because it's, you know, it's beautiful and great, but there's this one scene where Timothy Chalmay's character fucks a peach and leaves his semen in it and the other guy like goes to take a bite out of it and it's supposed to I don't know it's probably symbolic of some sort and I just remember being in the theater I'm like eat it you sick fuck I will say I've never read the book but in the book he eats the peach oh yeah why doesn't he eat the peach in the movie come on I don't know I guess it would have grossed everybody out eat the peach you sick fuck I know that's like it was so funny because you know you're. I was in a theater like full of like you know people who look very like pristine and well put (laughs) together and then this happened I was like fuck yes but it didn't happen (laughs) but yeah I just like I loved everything about it everything about this movie the whole love story the super sad Sufjan Stevens soundtrack. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's super depressing, but it's just beautiful. I think this is probably one of the most beautiful films um, mm. visually that has ever been created of all time. Mm. It's just, yeah, I'm gonna go out there and say bold. it. <laughs> it's very bold. <laughs> like no, it. it's just like, you know, I remember like being in the theater and it's like, I could feel like heat from the sun. Oof. It was like this oh, yeah. bizarre experience. Yeah. Very sensual. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the also probably make another bold statement. One of the hottest scenes of the decade for sure is um, Army Hammer slow dancing oh. to love my way. <laughs> love my way from the psychedelic yeah. furs. And he's like got his, you know, linen top. Like um, he only has like two buttons, the bottom button. Oh. And he's just like got his like crew socks and he's kind of like doing a really amazing 80s dance and I'm like god this is just a beautiful moment I liked it if he had eaten the peach <laughs> I would have liked it more I just feel like there's this like sort of restraint to it where like it yeah. won't get quite gross or not gross but it won't get quite explicit enough Yeah, like it wants to maintain this cool I think it knew that it was already playing with the line of like what yeah. people would accept but I like everything else like it's a really good Romance, very like you said, sensual and like of the natural world, yes. and just like mm-hmm. watching juice drip so, from someone's uh, like and you lips down their like uh, chest yes. is like so sexy, and you don't feel like sticky or nasty when you watch it. Like when there's like this place where they go and have their little tryst, and it's this um, abandoned treehouse type place with a fucking filthy, dusty mattress on the ground, and it looks so dirty, but you don't feel dirty when you watch it because it looks so nice. And part of it is the same part of, like, Wounds we talked about, just Army mm-hmm. Hammer's, like, on-screen charm. Yeah, like, he is so charming. That'll um, pave over any problems you have with anything. Right. Oh, they were both so good. Like, their chemistry, um, Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer... Yeah, they just, their chemistry works so well together. And I like this movie a lot too because it it does follow the sad, you know, gay love story, which we kind of talked about when we were talking about um, our top films and how Knife and Heart 
that came out this mm-hmm. last year kind of doesn't do that, which makes it really cool. But even though it kind of follows that same pattern, I don't know. I liked how he, he had such like a, a good support system where a lot, a lot of these movies, it's a lot of the, the mother, you know, where the son's going to the mother with all of his issues and the father and the son really have a great connection. And he actually sort of comes out to his father with his emotions initially that's what i think is significant about the film on top of like the sensory pleasures is like the big deal about the movie is like it's not really a big deal like yeah Yeah. you would think it would be this like everyone's against this romance that's budding between these two men but honestly like everyone just sort of sees it happening and like lets it just play out yeah Uh, it's it's sort of doomed but no one really wants to step in and like stop it where it it's more so on the older well army hammer because he's older and he has to go back to the united states at some point so it's sort of you there's know, a timeline on it right? yes uh, yes even though there's a sequel that's being planned to this film oh, oh i know uh but yeah i just think it's like kind of cool to see this like sexual awakening in this like, gay context mm-hmm. that's not about misery and like right yeah. The it misery feels of coming natural. out. It yeah. feels like if you were mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, like me as a young girl, if I was in Italy and there was like some hot person out there, like it, it would have been the same thing. Like at some point your summer love ends and you go about your exactly. life and right. it might yeah. suck. They just have whatever. two dicks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> two just two dick boys. <laughs> but I loved it and I'm looking forward to any kind of sequel. As long as Army Hammer is still in it, and mm-hmm. Timothy, Ch- I, I love Timothy Chalmet. Like I call him Timmy Chalmet. Ooh, <laughs> Timmy Chalmet, oh, Timmy boy from Chalmet, the Chalmet Nation. Like he, like both of them were so comfortable in these mm-hmm. roles. They're both like straight men, which I think is kind of interesting. How they didn't make it seem uncomfortable in any sense mm-hmm. of the word. And sometimes whenever they're straight men playing gay men right. in movies, you really kind of sense that. But not with them. It was really, it was awesome. Mm. So that's my number two. Um, so Hana, what is your number two? So my number two was Mother, oh. uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Who I've heard that Darren Aronofsky's middle name is Aaron. So his name would Darren be Darren Aaron Aronofsky. <laughs> Darren Aaron? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> Which is fantastic. I, I don't want to hear otherwise. Right, exactly. <laughs> I heard it one place and I was like, that's the truth. Um, <laughs> so... So Mother is a biblical allegory as well as an allegory for the violence that has been wrought upon the earth. Um, so it opens up with a charred woman. Her There's this jewel that's taken from her body. It's placed in this uh, pedestal, and then this beautiful house appears. Jennifer Lawrence, who is referred to as um, the mother awakens from this beautiful bed. She's remodeling this beautiful house, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Um, And then her husband is Javier Bardem, Mm -hmm. who is the poet. And he's having trouble writing his next poem. So then this man comes in from from outside. He's the sick uh, doctor. So the poet is trying to take care of him. He's, you know, he, he gets to know him. Um, he's only going to stay the night, and then the night becomes a few days. And then the wife of this man comes in, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who is just foxy as ever. She gives the best, like, bitchy side eye yes. in this movie. Oh, yeah. She's oh, great. Delicious. So then they continue to stay, and Jennifer Lawrence is just, like, fixing the hell out of this house, like, cleaning up after everybody, trying to maintain the wholeness of the house. And... 
then the sons of the couple come in. Then at that point, havoc kind of ensues. And it's this allegory for um, the Garden of Eden and um, Adam and Eve coming, and then Cain and Abel, the murder of um, Abel by Cain, and then kind of like the havoc of humanity. And the New Testament sort of creeps in towards the end. Yeah. And on a broader scope, I would almost say it's like the horror of just having people over to your house. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Like an unrestrained house party, just like havoc in every corner and like the attempt to, to clean it up. Darren Aronofsky was inspired by Woman in Nature, which is a book that I have Ooh. called... Oh, it's Woman in Nature, The Roaring Inside Her by Susan Griffin, which is a history of the world from the perspective of men... But it's kind of this, like, beautiful uh, literary version. It's not this, like, historical retelling. It's based upon, like, philosophers and um, biologists and all of these men in positions of power and the rationalizations they have for controlling the planet and women. And it kind of puts the history of woman and nature in parallel. And then... At the end of, uh, or maybe like two-thirds of the way through the book, it switches to the perspective of women, um, end of nature. And it's this like really beautiful, sprawling history of the world told in this wonderful prose. So this movie is like a reinterpretation of this book as like this horrific theme ride through the history of the world as a metaphor, basically. And it's fantastic and and horrific jennifer lawrence does a great job of being like basically a wife who's like trying to keep everything together and her like very selfish husband is an artistic narcissist exactly he is god yeah he's just like totally railroading all of her needs for the sake of his ego and she's like begging him to just like can we please get these people the fuck out of this house? Can we just like the sink live is happily? not greased, right? <laughs> Don't sit on the sink. Yeah, <laughs> and he finally kind of like capitulates to her. They want to have. She wants to have a child. He's like obsessed with his own artistry. He finally fucks her for the first time. They have a son, and that son does not. You know, his fate is kind of sealed from the beginning, and he's like totally ripped apart. He's Jesus. People are eating his flesh. Spoilers in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's this really like grotesque um, literalization of everything that, ha- and it, it kind of like you can see the horror of these myths that, especially like Judeo Christian um, culture, has taken for granted as like the law of the world. I just think it's a fantastic literalization of the violence that has been done upon the world and women in general. And it's like very, very fun to watch, even when it's at its worst. So, uh, spoiler alert, this is my number one movie. Mm -hmm. Oh. (laughs) For all the reasons you just described. It is horrific. It's like a horror movie, but it's philosophical. It's like concerned with the environment and with gender politics. It's so large in scope. It's like someone just decided, like, I'm going to make a movie about all of human existence. And they, like, actually pulled it off, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. Like, it's such a huge metaphor to try and, like, work into an hour and a half long film. What I love about this movie is, like, everyone talks about how this is, like, so over the top and so, like, 
broad and over-explanatory in its themes. Yeah, the metaphor is just so obvious. And then 15 people will give you 15 different metaphors of what it's supposed to represent. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I just love how, how, like, oh, yeah, it's so obvious. But, like, it means, like, so many different things to so many different people. But it pulls everything off. It pulls off the religious angle. Like, it pulls off the, the environmentalist. environmentalist angle. It pulls off, like, the way men, men have subjugated women. It somehow, like, is so large in scope yet nails it. It's so sprawling in all the themes it's trying to touch on, yet it nails them. That, to me, again, why I put it as my top film of the decade. Like, how did you talk about all this in one movie and you nailed it? Like, it kills me. I, yeah. I did like the insanity of it being in theaters. It was really fun watching it at AM, like, back to, like, when you see movies like this, like, AMC, and you have people that are like, hey, let's go see a fun movie on Friday night. Mother looks great. I was, like, having a blast. And then when they tore that baby apart. <laughs> that lost a lot of people. Oh, no. but yeah, I, people were so I, upset. And I, like, was like, what the hell? This is fabulous. I, I watched this movie with my mom <laughs> on Mother's Day. Perfect. Oh, and God. Yeah, perfect. And we got, we were approaching that scene with the baby. And she was like, they're not going to. No, They're not going to kill the baby. That baby alone. I was like, Mom, no. have you read the Bible? Do you know what we're watching? Like, he is doomed. He will die. Yeah. Like, I guarantee. And then when it happened, you're like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe he <laughs> yeah. actually, like, showed it. Well, it was pulled out detail. of theaters, right? Like, not even what? after that. Not pulled out, but, like, it didn't last that long it in theaters. Bombs. I think is the word you're looking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, shit. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> to me, like, great art has to be polarizing in some sense. Yeah. Like, and the fact that so many people hated this movie yeah, and yeah. I loved it, like it just deepened my appreciation yeah. for it. Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. James has already spilled the beans. His number one is mother. mother. So I was talking about earlier about like making room for just one film per director on our lists, right? Mm -hmm. That's something I was striving towards. And when I was doing mine, Black Swan was like the movie I had to pick over Mother. If I had to like pick oh, really? either one over each other. And it was very hard. I think he made like two great films. His, his other one from this decade was Noah, which was very good as well. But really, that was like a precursor to it was Mother. Good. Yeah. yeah. And Black Swan, I think, is in direct conversation with the wrestler before it. So I just want to know if y'all want to talk about this in general, just for a second. Like, what makes Mother more significant to you than Black Swan? Because to me, that like red shoes, gothic, like mm -hmm. coming of age, like sexual awakening I, soup of black swan like really me, brim to the surface to me it's the audacity of it mother like any true great work of art it's like pushing the boundaries and it's so audacious it's trying to tackle the entirety of human history in a film which is like a lot to chew on and yet somehow it's dressing it up as like a horror film so it's like immediately engaging in a way like you said like that idea of just like a party where the, the guests keep coming and there's relatable shit. horror. Yeah. Relatable <laughs> horror. And this, like that's such a great metaphor for like the environmentalism and how tr humans have like treated the earth 
to me, it was like a bigger risk and bigger reward. Black Swan feels more contained. Like it was mm-hmm. more of a genre film that he executed. I buy that. Perfectly. Mother was like him really swinging for the fences. And for a lot of people, maybe it wasn't 100% on the mark. But goddamn, like he he like did a really good job of touching on some very important topics. So that's why I kind of give the edge to Mother. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind. Please. My number one of the decade. <laughs> Le Garçon Sauvage. Ah! The Wild Boys. <laughs> yes! Wild Boys! I knew it. From 2018. <laughs> it's set in the early 20th century. It's got this like early 20th century explorer vibe to it. We're like, we're going to sail the seven seas and explore new worlds. The reason for exploring new worlds is because boys need to be punished. <laughs> <laughs> There's this group of rowdy young Only boys. wild boys. Who are <laughs> wild. <laughs> They're basically brutal rapists. Uh, hooligans who are like causing havoc in their communities. And to reform them, this haggard sea captain has this planned boot camp he puts the kids through. It reminds me of an Amori episode. You know, those like boot camp episodes like, oh, I'll yeah. transform your like yeah. unruly teen into like I'm going to scare camp. you straight. Exactly. Yeah. So this captain comes in and says, you know, I'm going to take your unruly boys who have raped their drama teacher during mm-hmm. a uh, performance of Macbeth that went very, very disgustingly wrong. haywire. Yes. I'm going to transform them into good kids. The boys are played by adult women. They are transported to this island that is this like evil fantasy island where they are subjected to these hairy testicle fruits that are the only food that's available to them. The more they eat it, the more their gender is violated and they transform from young boys into women. Yes. Uh, their dicks fall off and wash away in the, sh- <laughs> in the uh, sand yes. and they grow breasts and they become more sexually charged with all aspects of the island they become sexually attracted to their captain's giant dick uh they are sexually attracted to the shrubbery which is vaginal and wants to welcome them in yes there's these uh other plants that sort of ejaculate this like um, a lot of stuff fluid. looks like dicks on this island yeah and it's semen. this like hedonistic pleasure island that also subverts and violates your sense of gender and your sense of self and transforms these unruly boys into I don't want to say docile women because that's not true, but like sort of just like neutralized people. Like what they gathered their privilege to violate other people with Mm -hmm. has been taken away from them. They have to reassess like their place in the world. And ultimately they just become bad women. They, uh, you know, sort of like (laughs) become pirates who are also women and like take over pirate ships and stuff like that. Yes. So just in a general sense, I think what is gender and what like constitutes gender in the modern world I think is a major topic of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. The way this movie deconstructs that and just to- totally obliterates it really mm-hmm. is fascinating to me. I have no clear way to explain it, but when you're watching it, like gender just means nothing by yeah. the end. It's dead. It's right. gone. Yeah. It's, we're, we're post-gender. Yeah. Yes. Doesn't the captain have like one breast? He has one boob, but yeah. he has a giant dick, right. which is tattooed. It's, yeah. And then there's these dogs that wear the captain's face that like mount the boys while they're like sleeping on the ship at night. Yeah. It's just really hard to pinpoint what this movie's saying about gender mm-hmm. other than that like... It's just whatever. Like, what is it's it? It's a question mark. It doesn't... Yeah. Yeah. Meh? On top of all of that like thematic underpinning... Mm-hmm. 
there's also just this beautiful squared aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. I think we got a lot of that with the lighthouse last yeah, year. Definitely. Where it feels like this lost object that just like washed up on the shore and it feels like this mm. old cursed yes. reel of film that just like should not have been seen by human eyes. <laughs> and most of it's in black and white. When it's not, it's tinted purple and this like mm-hmm. sort of like degraded film quality. And I just don't think this movie has gotten its due in either its approach to gender, its approach to sexuality, and its beauty in filmmaking. And just anytime I think about like what I want more movies to be and more movies to explore and more movies to make people uncomfortable and question how they see the world and see themselves, like this movie just embodies so mm-hmm. much of it. It's so vulgar and upsetting and beautiful and just like everything I want out of cinema. And I gush about it a lot. And I show it to people a lot, and a lot of the response I get back was like, that was, that was pretty okay, it was fine. I, I, thought, it was, I just thought it was interesting. Um, so I don't know if I could even convert any more people than I already have just through mere words, but I think this really is the height of filmmaking in the 2010s, is The Wild Boys. So about The Wild Boys, <laughs> and I get it, it's a fucking awesome movie. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and I think like the last time we talked about this, we, didn't, we couldn't figure out the purpose of Trevor. Or did we? Okay, so Trevor is a um, <laughs> floating glitter skull that the boys worship. It looks just like the Damien Hurst, like bedazzled diamond skull. I see him as but this better. like representation <laughs> of like toxic masculinity okay. that they worship. Mm. Fucking Trevor. I couldn't really explain it other than that Trevor is a bad boy and they love bad boy behavior bad and they worship bad it. boy bejeweled bad boys yes, yes. okay gotcha because i think like that's the one part of well <laughs> one of the many parts <laughs> of the movie that i was just like i don't know what it is but i'm into it you know what i mean and that's how i felt like when i watched this movie like it's I'm, surreal yeah it's very surreal so it's just like a beautiful fantasy world and it's exciting and nothing is ever dull. And yes, the way that it plays with gender, I fucking love so much too. It just kind of makes it like... It's like arbitrary. Yeah. Like they're still assholes at the end of the day. The, their gender didn't change them. You know what I mean? Like just to show like it's whatever. Yeah. The captain says like, I'll make them into women. That'll make them good people. No. And by yeah. the end of the film, they're still bad people. Yeah. They just don't have dicks anymore. Yeah. They're just bad ladies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's using an old fashioned language to talk about our new deconstruction of gender. And I find that tension really interesting. But I think it is picking apart something that is really falling apart before our eyes in, like, mm-hmm. cultural conversations right now. And by the time you pull through and get through the piracy towards the end, it's like, okay, we've really, like, gotten past this bullshit that we've been right. really holding on to. And we've broken through to a new dawn. And yeah. it's just total chaos and, like, it, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And I really love that them becoming women doesn't make them good people because they're like some really shitty women in the world and some like super shitty men. And I think that men have more power to like assert their shittiness onto other people. But that's just kind of like a system that has been set up since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to dare say without really checking my facts right now, Probably the only movie on any of our lists that has its own theme song. And you gotta respect that. <laughs> I want to be a wild boy. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a hot, hot theme song. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think between this and Knife and Heart, this is like the new oh. the new new queer cinema. This is like the next wave of yeah. like queer genre films I, I want to see. I love it. And it's like, you know, I look forward, like this gives me hope for the future. Yeah, so I found comfort in the wild boys. <laughs> 
Hey, Brittany. Hello. What was your number one movie of the decade? My number one movie of the decade, and this I immediately slapped on as my number one when we did this, because mm-hmm. I had no doubt in my mind, and it is Hereditary. Wow. Oh, God. I love this movie so much. I think I've watched it more times than any other movie, except for Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion and The Wedding Singer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I just, like, well, I watch it the soundtrack it cannot compare to those two films, you know? V true. V true. Yeah. But yes, I just love this movie because... I had such like a really intense emotional connection with it. When I first saw it, I was alone in a movie theater and it was like a week night where I was like, I just want to go see it, whatever. And I was like, I never thought I would cry for a horror movie, but I was like sobbing like a psycho. And what I love so much about it is like these, these characters um, become like your family in a weird way where you, you're so invested in each character and you have like a lot of empathy towards each one mm-hmm. of them. And as horrible things start to happen to them, you really, really, like it really hits you in the gut whenever their world starts to kind of fall apart and everybody loses their damn minds. Other than that, the way it made me feel with the, like the isolation, mm-hmm. you know, there's this house in the middle of nowhere. There's like a store in the middle of nowhere. Like everything is very like isolated and you can really feel loneliness throughout this entire movie um, and the loneliness of each character too. And ugh, it's just, it's great. Like I've never felt this way about a movie ever. And it's, yeah, the first, um, like, debut full feature-length film from Ari Aster, yeah. which is insane, like, that this right. is somebody's first movie, and yes. it's this freaking phenomenal. Yeah. Also, probably, I would say, the best Tony Collette performance since Muriel's Wedding. Yes, absolutely. Why didn't she get an Oscar for this? Which shows you why it's such bullshit. <laughs> She is, and I say it all the time, but she's my favorite actress of all time. And like this movie just kind of like reaffirmed that for me where I'm like, God, she's amazing. And I can't picture anybody playing that role except for her. And it's got some cool um, satanic shit in it too, which is pretty nice. Um, like, hashtag payment. Hashtag payment. And like the, the payment lore is so accurate. And I love that the work was put in to like not take something and then... Be like, oh, yeah, here's some weird fucking symbols and stuff that Mm -hmm. look evil. Let's throw it out there. Like, everything means something. And that's a a big thing with this movie is, like, every little thing in in the background, things that are in the front of your face, everything means something. Everything has a purpose in this film, which is how a lot of good films are. Like, some films don't really follow that, that much anymore, but... When I think of like great films, that's like the big thing is like every moment, every item, every object, everything has a purpose. And mm-hmm. that's so true with Hereditary. Well, I'm glad you brought up Hereditary because we haven't really talked about these A24 horror films. Yes. Which oh seem my to God. be like blowing my killing. mind. Yeah, we haven't touched yeah. on it yet. But like you think about The Witch and It Follows and mm-hmm. Hereditary yeah. and Midsummer, Like yeah. the 2010s have been... A wealth. Really, a wealth of like great horror films and like art house horror mm-hmm. films, like horror films with meaning. Yeah, yeah, and I, not I, I'm stupid glad cheesy you, stuff. You picked that one out because like that's one thing we haven't touched on yet. Like horror films have really reached a new level in art. Yeah, definitely. In this decade, it's really remarkable. This movie to me, at first, it obviously is a horror movie, but when I first saw it i was like wow this felt like way more like a dark lifetime movie like more of a family drama it has like a dollhouse aesthetic yes Uh, and the way that the dramas play out within these like abstracted 
meticulously curated dollhouse mm-hmm. spaces, yeah. I think, yeah. affords it a sort of like melodrama on top of being like a creepy horror film. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Well, and what, what I've noticed these directors doing, like Ari Aster, like moving from Hereditary to Midsummer or David Eggers, it seems like the horror films are a stepping stone to like something else. Horror isn't like the genre that it used to be where right. it's like has to be one thing like the lighthouse is like a horror film in right. some sense but it's like something different and weirder well the story of the 2000s like, was torture porn the story of mm-hmm. the 2010s is like art horror art yeah, horror yeah fantastic which i love yeah. yeah yeah i feel the same way about horror as i do about comedy that like they're so like inextricable from daily living and that they like coexist together so often so i love like any genre meld that is horror and something else which is like also midsummer like this relationship story and horror coexisting together and i think that like that movement is really exciting and like i do think you know hereditary was obviously like a straightforward horror movie that ari aster could then use to like kind of branch off into other other realms I fucking love this movie. This gave me my first like visceral movie watching experience. That moment where Toni Collette is floating and like sawing her own head off with the piano wire. And you can't see what she's doing at first. Like she's just moving her hands in this very metronomic way and I, I was like is there what like what's it and then you see that and then her head falls off and I was like literally shaking yes it, yeah it was horrific everything's so silent and there's no background music to be like right you're just kind of like you hear the yeah <laughs> and you're, oh yeah there were so many movies that I saw from like 2005 until 2010 that were all about the jump scares and you knew they were coming and it was like just a part of the horror genre and I think one part of especially of what Ari Aster has done but what I've seen in other horror movies is this unflinching like gaze at the horrific and there are these scenes in Hereditary where the camera is showing the sun sleeping or and then you can see Tony Collette in the shadows. Just oh, like, in the corner? Yeah. Just just like, like, oh. and, it's, and it just stays there for what feels like five minutes. And it's like, I felt like my blood was boiling looking at her. <laughs> and it's the same thing in like the witch when that crow especially is like picking, picking at the woman's. Tit. Yeah. It's just like, ugh, like her. So like rather than having this like split second horror, it's like you it's have like to engage. Shoving with, your face in exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, Hannah, what was what? your number one movie of the decade? <laughs> so my number one movie was The Florida Project. Yes. Yes. Nice. Directed by Sean Baker. Um, I love Tangerine also. I think Sean Baker is a fantastic. I had to pick between these two and yeah. I went with The Florida Project as well. Yeah. So I've seen this movie twice. James and I just watched it recently. It's about uh, Mooney, who is growing up in a Florida project in uh, the Magic Castle. It's like... Almost the Magic Kingdom, but it's like just outside of Disneyland. Um, so she's growing up with a kind of like neglectful absentee mother who's like very fun, but she's terrible, terrible at being a mother. The school's out for the summer. Mooney is kind of like wreaking havoc in her project as well as the project next to her um, with some friends. And throughout the movie, you're following Mooney in her misadventures 
you're seeing the um, economic decline of the mother um, and her desperation. Her relationships are kind of withering. She goes into prostitution, and then eventually Mooney is taken from her at the end of the movie. So I love this movie because, you know, there's like the old film critic line of exposition versus inference. And I think this movie excels in inference. It's building this beautiful world without revealing anything to you explicitly. It's building these like totally real characters. Bobby, played by Willem Dafoe, who is the manager of the project that she lives in and is trying to maintain order, trying to keep the project up to code while also giving a break to all of the people that are living there kind of illegally and following Mooney in her like totally doomed environment, which she sees as this playground, basically. She's like running around these deserted neighborhoods with her friends, these huge like off-brand Disney markets with her friends. And to her, it's this like wonderland that she's exploring with her friends. And you're seeing her mother, who is like slowly losing resources and is struggling. And then like the bubble of Mooney's childhood basically collapses at the very end of the movie. I think this movie could have been done in such a cloying way, like so kind of unsubtly. And Sean Banker did a fantastic job of making this like a very real and totally non-exploitative film. So for instance, like when Mooney's mother goes into sex work, you know, he could have done something like there's a scene of her putting on lipstick and like putting on lingerie and then telling Mooney to like go in another room. But you kind of realize that she's started doing this by these three interconnected scenes where Mooney's just in the bathtub for an extended period of time. And there's like rap music playing in the background. So there's no explanation given for this, but you know, there has to be some reason for these scenes. And then you realize what she's doing. She has money suddenly kind of without any reason. She hasn't found work anywhere else. So it's just this like totally beautiful, heartbreaking portrait of like realized desperation for this young, like very fun girl. The last thing I'll say after this like long rant is this is the best child acting yeah. I think I've ever seen. Brooklyn Prince. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it's not, okay, I don't think it's actually acting in the sense like it feels so genuine. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Just let these kids run amok and let's film them doing their thing. It's not acting. Like it's so real. It's realism. Well, it's not you, acting. If you don't mind me drawing a parallel to what we talked about like you know, probably hours ago, was like uh, silent film era uh-huh. filmmaking. This is basically a Little Rascals film. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. basically these little kids who are forming this community while they have this unstructured playtime and yeah. this like sort of drastic financial circumstances. And they're running around in these like playgrounds and they're acting like little punks. And like <laughs> any adult figure that sort of imposes on their playtime is an authority figure that needs to be subverted. Mm-hmm. And they had this like punk anarchism like... Mm-hmm. solidarity where they like buck against that just for fun just because they have nothing it. else to do yeah. and it's like playtime mm-hmm. and you know you see that a lot with Bobby played by Willem Dafoe yeah. where he honestly has a kind heart and is yeah. looking after these kids and you see a couple instances where he like steps in and stops other people from abusing them Yeah, but for the most part to them he is an authority figure that mm-hmm. needs to be like stopped right. like he's an <laughs> obstacle to their play Yeah, and I really just love 
the punk spirit of these kids forming this little community and like having fun in this like drastic playground. And there's this sort of unifying aspect of poverty among them where they're all on the same level because they're staying in the same extended stay motels outside of Disney World. They're like living off the scraps of the world. Mm -hmm. Right. But they have this punk vibe with each other, but also the tragedy of the film is like, you know, they're doomed through no fault of their own. They are not going to have a good lot in life. Right. And it's not their fault. And that's like the story of like human beings. Like our lot in life is not really our fault. It's like our parents and where we come from. And is that not the same exact story as Shoplifters, which is the first movie we talked about today? Exactly. Yeah. It is. <laughs> okay. It is. No, there's like a parallel through a mm-hmm. lot of these films we've talked about. That's the thing that's so incredible. To, it's like at many points in this film, the same circumstance means completely different things to the children and the adults. Like, there's the scene where um, Mooney and two of her friends are running through this abandoned neighborhood. These lots have been vacated probably because of the the housing bust, like people buying homes that they couldn't eventually afford. So it's just totally abandoned. And they're, they like see these dirty mattresses and they're like, oh, look, there's a mattress and like these degrading walls. And to them, it's this, this playland and it can exist in that way for them for this limited amount of time that they have and then eventually it's going to mean something completely different so mooney and her friends eventually burn down this apartment complex kind of accidentally the mother of one of the children decides she doesn't want her child spending any more time with mooney which is probably a good idea but mooney's mother Haley takes this very personally she goes to the restaurant that her friend works at with mooney and then she tells mooney you know, order whatever you want. Um, you can have anything you want. And she's trying to, like, get back at her friend. And Mooney has no idea that this is what she's doing. And she's like, oh, great, I can order whatever I want. The world to Haley and her intentions, what she's trying to do in this restaurant situation, which is, like, piss off her friend, basically for cutting off connection, looks totally different to Mooney. To Mooney, it looks like a fun day at... The mm-hmm. Waffle House, and she gets to have everything she wants, and she gets to have a burping contest in the restaurant. I love movies that can show the like intersecting perspectives and needs of the characters in one scene. And I think that they do that with Haley and with Mooney and with Bobby spectacularly. Sean Baker is telling three different stories in the same scene, like spectacularly. I'm talking about with the 2010s, like giving voices to people that haven't really had a voice in the past, like this kind of character, like the people living in motels, living like paycheck to paycheck on the poverty line. Like we haven't really heard those voices in a way that this movie illuminates. So like that's one trend in modern filmmaking that I'm so on board with is like, Let's talk about the people on mm-hmm. the like edge of society in a like very real way. Yeah. And this feels like some kind of like modern realism. And it's not like poverty porn, which I think is No, important. not at all. It is like a totally real like humanizing movie. I love that the first sound cue in the film over the opening credits is celebrate good times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they'll set the tone yeah. and like Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I mean, there will be good times even if everything's terrible. Yeah. Totally. And you know what? Another A24 distributed film. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. another achievement on that front, too. Yeah. I wonder what percent of our top movies would be 
A24. We will tell you at the end of the month <laughs> when we aggregate everyone's films in like one concise top 10. It will take that long. Uh, James's top, I think 25, will be listed yeah. mm-hmm. in this episode's show notes on like the actual post on the website. Yes. Everyone else's list will come throughout the month. Mine's already up. If you just follow swampflex.com, look at what we're doing this month. By the end of February, we will have a group consensus on the best films of the decade. You need to look to no other resource to see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shield we, your eyes from others. Right. We're also going to see a list like this, honestly. Right. <laughs> fuck we are the Rolling authority. Stone. Yeah. Fuck like Vanity Fair. All that. This Show me another list that has certified copy of the Wild Boys and like... <laughs> We need to talk about Kevin and the Florida Project and I'm happy with Queen of Versailles. Queen of Versailles. Queen of Versailles. She's on it. Yeah, I don't think like I don't think you'll see another list like this. We no. have a unique perspective. Most I would special. Say. Yes. Right. Yeah, we're very special. <laughs> Pay us respect as such. I'm assuming not having edited this yet. This was a long episode. I will tell you in the future we are going back to our normal format mm-hmm. soon. Uh, we'll be coming back with a normal episode in two weeks. I believe we're going to be talking about the films of Celine Schiama next. Yes, mm-hmm. we shall. Uh, more nice. hoity-toity, artsy-farsy stuff. Oh, yes. Love it. French cinema. Mm, <laughs> cinema. Well, we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Everybody check out swampflex.com. And, I don't know, send us some feedback about what your favorite movies of the decade were. Cool. Yeah. We like to talk to y'all people. Yeah. Hot Dog Boy. Mr. Hot Dog Boy, what were your favorite movies (laughs) of the 2010s? We need to know. Please. Please tell us. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.